Mofax with Adam Curry for October 12th, 2020. This is episode number 51. And sounding worse than he feels, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Mofax on the microphone. <laughs> How you doing, Mo? I'm doing pretty good, Adam. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing okay. Now, you you sound a little bit, uh, a, a little bit weakish under the weather. What's going on? Uh, for my fantasy football fans out there, I was a questionable, but uh, game time decision we're going to play. So um, <laughs> let's, let's, let's do this. Wait, wait a minute. A big sports <laughs> reference I didn't get, even a fantasy sports reference. But yes, okay. So we're doing good. Good to have you back with me, man. And uh, what is All it? Right. Yeah, I just had a, uh, yeah, we had some stuff going on Saturday. So here we are on a Monday. Getting ready for another uh, MoFax with Adam Curry. What have the responses been from uh, from our Big Fifty episode? Man, I got a lot of good responses. Uh, everybody was well. Ninety seven point three percent of the people uh, appreciated it. Other ones, I got a few people saying, Uh-oh. Yeah. "Uh oh," that you know about you know the, the, the normal atonement uh, pushback. That's why we always speak about wanting to change the term from reparations to atonement because of the yeah. triggering effect it has. Yeah, I, I, I saw a lot so. of I saw a lot of interesting feedback um, regarding the legal case that you made, which I, I thought was fantastic <laughs> to listen to. And there were a lot of people I saw going like, "Well, hold on a second now, how exactly does that work?" And that's all I wanted to do was make the legal case for, and more than make the case for reparation slash atonement itself is to make the understanding of the political ramifications that this demand has and hopefully people understand this is why quote-unquote black people need their own of america need their own designation so that's why that's why i took from it well i think i think you definitely got a lot of people thinking uh and and that's always good. And it was it was interesting. That's all we want to do. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's how we do the work. <laughs> all right. Without further ado, let's find out what the topic is for today. I'm Mo Facts with Adam Curry. Episode number 51, round around the wheel of topics goes. Where it stops, nobody knows. Well, Mo knows. Let's find out now. What is the topic for episode number 51? Safe white spaces. Safe white spaces. Okay. Well, I'm very curious to see where you're going to take us today, Mo. So where we're going today is that in the episode, last episode, we wrapped up with the demand being uh, integration, or that's what the media narrative was, that we wanted integration. We were pushing for integration. And I kind of want to push back against that because, one, we never got integration. What we end up getting was uh, assimilation. And two, uh, that was not the demand of everybody. And this is another narrative. And this is what we uh. do here. We tear down narratives. <clears throat> First, we look at what's the source of the narrative. And then what was the actual temperature of the people at that time? So it's going to be a you know a zigzag, you know, weavy, windy road, but we'll get there <laughs> at the end. <laughs> so, I have this piece that I found from uh Jeff Glore. Uh, I think that's CBS and yes. uh, he had Calvin Bacon 
Baker, excuse me, Calvin Baker, who's a novelist, which that's important. And he, they discuss his book, A More Perfect Reunion. This morning, we continue our promise to focus on at least one new book a week during the pandemic. Today, A More Perfect Reunion by Calvin Baker. Baker is an acclaimed novelist, but for this book, he took a different approach, blending history, style, and remarkably powerful ideas at the core of our nation. A more perfect reunion is Baker's clarion call for America. Someone said, why have we to this moment about race? I said, because I think race is stupid. What does that mean, race is stupid? We all know that race is an invention. You write, there's never been a race problem in America. Explain that. It's an integration problem. Beginning in 1774, the founders of this nation began meeting for the Continental Congress, writing what would become the blueprint for the United States of America. Most recognized slavery was at odds with democracy, but the economics of the South and the need for a union to defeat England led to what Calvin Baker says was the original unconscionable compromise. I wonder what the founders would say if they came back and they saw this. Like, uh, we made a mess. I think they'd say we made a mess. I think they'd say, this is not what we intended. Baker's book, A More Perfect Reunion, is titled so, he says, because the first union never actually happened. Now, which Baker was this? I I got Jeff Glor, but which Baker was this? This is Calvin Baker. Oh, Calvin Baker. Okay, yeah. And he's not a historian. He's a novelist. (laughs) Which I can't, not saying a novelist can't write a history book, but no. That's not what this is. Um, this is another narrative-driven piece. He, he's a fine, that, he's a fine subject from Chicago uh, and the Chicago University system. I might add. <laughs> <laughs> oh, whoa! I got a bing right off the bat. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we we know we know what the Chicago um, uh, is, is all about, but <clears throat> his book uh, it's about his book is re- it says that. Uh, Blend of history, style, and remarkable ideas at the core of the nations uh, to analyze America's failure at race, racial integration. So his point straight off is about integration. Um, and he is big on narrative. And as you can hear in this next clip, he's going to put it right out there. Integration has always been the real goal of civil rights in America. If you read about the founding era, there are abolitionists even who say, well, we've got to emancipate the enslaved people. And the question is immediately, how do you integrate them? And that's where everyone stops. Baker argues the United States has tried to handle the question of integration in four stages. The Continental Congress, we mentioned, they basically punted. The Civil War of the 1860s, which led to emancipation, but not equality. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, a government program with real drive that made significant, if incomplete, inroads. And right now. Lincoln, before the Civil War, is tacitly telling the South they can keep slavery. Right. But it's an awakening, right? It's a process. And Lincoln changed his mind. If Abraham Lincoln had not been assassinated, how differently would it have gone? <laughs> so so I've, I've never, I don't think we've ever really talked about the, the integration concept. And it's interesting to hear this because I've, I've never really, if it was emancipation. 
And I think that's where everybody dropped it. <laughs> Never even thinking about uh, integration. Well, the integration part was always the narrative push. How do we integrate or assimilate these black people into American society? Right. Um, now, and a couple of things here. Jeff Glory used the word tacitly. He said Lincoln tacitly uh, told the South that they could keep slavery if, um, you know, to save the Union. But if you look up the word tacitly, it means in a tacit manner uh, done in silence or implied. Yeah, without being directly <laughs> stated. To... <laughs> it's like wink, wink. But as we know here, right, as we know here, that's not how it worked. No. Um, and then he asked, how would it be different? So what we're going to do is we need to jump down to clip number seven and then come back to number six. We would have gotten to where we are now at the turn a hundred years ago. Where are we now compared to where we were when the Civil Rights Act was passed? I think the will in that moment to change was sharper, more focused. People understood what they had to do. They'd summoned the will to do it. You had broad alliances of people who said, we're going to do this, and this is what it's going to look like. Now, we are, I think we're still looking for complete language. Baker's book takes big shots at the America we think we created. You write about New York City, which is seen as the great melting pot. You say it's not. We live adjacent to one another. We're not really, right? So we walk down the street and like, oh, I can have this kind of food and this kind of food and this kind of person and this kind of person. Residentially, we live in, we live in different blocks. Segregated. Yeah, segregated. So it's a lot to unpack there. First of all, he couldn't even say the word segregated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did notice that. Jeff yeah. Glor had to like, he had to lead him on. And then he talks about this broad alliance of uh, people deciding what broad alliance. And finally, um, he said we would have got what we have now a hundred years earlier. Oh, that's all narrative BS, especially from what we explored about a honest Abe. Right. Uh, even in the last show. But I want to show before we go into because I have that throwback clip just to refresh people's minds of Honest Abe and what he really uh, what he really thought about slavery. I want to pl- go, jump to the end of this segment and show you how dangerous and for lack of a better word, in- infectious narrative is um and this book michelle not just deals with the big issue the, the biggest issues um but it's also beautifully written uh calvin just uh, he has a, a a way with words so highly recommended you know in in listening to him it it, it somewhat angers me a great deal to think that a hundred years ago we could be could have taken care of this stuff lincoln was and assassinated Andrew Johnson wow. steps in. yeah yeah yeah, it's it's a lot to think about. Hopefully, we will do the business of this work. Oh, oh, oh! <laughs> let's do the business of this work. That's a whole new twist. Are you doing the work? You, I'm doing the business of the work, my friend. I'm doing the business of the work. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, shakalaka! So I like you, that. You see how she took his narrative, yeah, and just ran with it as fact. Oh, we will be where we're at right now, a hundred years ago. I feel so sad. Well, we need to go back and listen to Mr. Jerome, uh, Jerome Bennett Jr. and what Abraham Lincoln really thought. The title on the book is Abraham Lincoln's White Dream. What's that mean? It means that 
contrary to what most people think. Abraham Lincoln's deepest desire was to deport all black people and create an all-white nation. It sounds like a wild idea now, and it is a wild idea, but from about 1852 until his death, he worked feverishly to try to create deportation plans, colonization plans, uh, to send black people either to Africa or to South Africa, South America, or to the islands of the sea. On December the 1st, 1862, in which he asked Congress to pass three constitutional amendments. One, to buy the slaves. Second, to, to declare free all people who had actually escaped. But the third one, his proposed 15th <laughs> Amendment, asked Congress to allocate money to deport black people to another place. Ship them out. <laughs> so does that sound like tacitly to you? No. <laughs> <laughs> wink, wink, <laughs> nudge, nudge. Uh, yeah. No, it doesn't. No. But that's but th- that, that is, is how- so that is so that fact is just really not taught, not known. You could you could read it. It's not like any secret. It's just it's never really discussed. But even as Jerome Bennett said, it's a wild idea just to even think the things that he found in the history books to be true, even though they're facts. But when you're competing with narrative, yeah. as uh, Mr. Calvin Baker comes in, a novelist, let me remind people, and as Jeff Glor said, oh, it's beautifully written. <laughs> so they can take a lie <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and beautifully write it and package it by a novelist or other people like Calvin Baker. And then it just sounds so good. Oh, yeah, we could have been. We're 100 years behind the record. You know, we were hundred years, behind in progress. And how does that move everything forward by pointing that out and then saying, "Oh boy, it sucks." It doesn't just doesn't seem very uh, productive to me. Well, what it does is it explains away why we haven't made the progress, and the only people that are that need to have short record of progress are the people that we give our vote away to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. Here. Yeah, gotcha. So they have to explain away, uh, you know, the, it, it was Lincoln and, you know, he would, he, you know, he was, uh, he would, he, 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 what, what is, I think they used the word, he, he, it was growth, you know, he grew, you know, he was as racist when he first started out, but by the time it was over, you know, he had blossomed to this social justice warrior, uh, president, <laughs> which is, yeah. is not the case. And, but this is why what we do here, we're doing the business of the work. <laughs> <laughs> um, we point out these fallacies and these fantasies and fantasy is going to be a huge part of this show. I just want to let people oh, uh, okay. uh, know up front uh, this image that we have in this, on our head of this perfect nation of this perfect society. It really hinders people. But before I continue on, I want to let Mr. Uh, Calvin Baker finish up with uh, why America failed to integrate it for. 
To bring about full integration, Baker envisions programs on the scale of the New Deal, the GI Bill, and the Federal Housing Administration. But in this book, he does not offer specific policy prescriptions. He says deliberately. Once you get to prescription, here's what happens in in books that talk about that talk about race and society. We compartmentalize them, and we say, okay, now we're going to talk about education. Now we're going to talk about the media. Now we're going to talk about criminal justice. I wanted to write a book that looked across these spaces. My question, can we live together or not? Do we want to live together or not? I think people can have different ideas on how to get to that Start with, line. start with what worked. Start with what brought us to this point. Right? I mean, we are better off than we were, I mean, as a nation. Right? We have come further than we'd come before. But now you've got to go the rest of the way. How long do you believe that takes? When I started the book, I thought three, four generations. I think if we're serious about the conversation we're having right now, two Two generations. It's possible. So that's our grandkids. Isn't it a wonderful thing to leave them? Uh, well, that's kind of dark. <laughs> It'll take two generations if we is if with his with the with the the Calvin Baker method or or I don't understand. Well, how, he doesn't have a method. The method he, he didn't <laughs> okay. even get to know. He, he said okay. himself. No, he he didn't have any solutions. But he said what we should do is do things like the New Deal, the GI Bill, and FHA. I pray to God we don't, because I did a little digging on those. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cato Institute, I think that's a pretty reputable, just just to be out front, and I think they're a right-tilting institute, but they are still uh, credible. And title, why the FDR uh, New Deal um, harm blacks? It says good intentions are overrated. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal, for instance, has been held for its lofty goals of reforming the American economy and helping the underprivileged. Yet mounting evidence, evidence here, not narrative, uh, developed by dozens of economists across the country shows the New Deal prolonged joblessness for millions and black people were especially hard hit. So I don't want none of that. I mean, well, right. This is his solution. And if if yeah. I if I can just interject and say that when it, when it comes to monetary policy, uh, you know, it's like what uh, FDR was considering, all the way up to what the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. Any anytime it comes to policy, and and that can also be um, policy of going into Syria or Iraq. No one ever knows what's really going to happen, but with with policy like uh, social services, it's it's. I I just want to say it's not necessarily malfeasant or malintended. Uh, it's just no one ever knows how it's going to work out. The problem is people typically don't learn from those mistakes. No, but when you have somebody like this guy uh, Calvin come out and say, "Oh, we need to do like the New Deal." And yeah. the GI Bill. He has, he has no idea he's, what he's talking about. He doesn't, he doesn't know if that's going to work. He's regurgitating narrative. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. He is. Re, and this is the heart. And you heard the lady at the end do the same thing that she just heard. Mm. Oh, we'll be 100 years better. Says who? Yeah. Says what? You know what I'm saying? What data points to that we would be where we were at 100 years earlier if, you know, if things would have played out differently? We don't know. 
But they go and spout out, and this, I'll just read the title of this one, how the GI Bill promised was uh, denied to millions of black World War II veterans. And that's really what helped create the suburbs, but we'll get down to that later. And then just to wrap up, um, I have clips here for Mr. Richard Rothstein. Have you ever heard of him? No, I don't uh, think so. Maybe. No, I don't. Okay. Okay. Well, he's a senior, senior fellow, Richard Rothstein, who authored the book, The Color of Law. I forgot. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I have this. Of course I do. I read this book. Yes, of course I had The right, Color of right. Law. I'm, yeah. I'm sure that's what. Yeah. So he, he in this next clip, uh, KALW1, he explains how the FHA was problematic. Public housing in this country began uh, in the mid-20th century uh, in the New Deal during the Roosevelt administration. It was the first civilian public housing ever built, and it began as a project for working-class families, not for poor people, for people who had jobs but in the Depression had no housing. And it was uh, mostly for whites. And the federal government uh, built the Public Works Administration, one of the first New Deal agencies, uh, built the first civilian public housing in this country. And Mm. everywhere in the country, it created segregated projects, even where communities were previously integrated. Uh, there were many integrated neighborhoods uh, in the mid-20th century or early 20th century. We would be stunned if we were transported back to that period and saw how much integration, residential integration there was for the simple reason that the uh, working class uh, people didn't have automobiles to get to work, so they all had to live close enough to the factories where they worked or the other workplaces. And so if you had a factory that was had Irish immigrant workers and Italian immigrant workers and Jewish immigrant workers and African Americans, they all live in roughly the same neighborhoods near the factories. Uh, That neighborhood where he grew up, uh, an integrated neighborhood, uh, was a neighborhood where the Public Works Administration demolished housing and built two separate projects, one for whites and one for African Americans, uh, creating segregation that previously hadn't existed and might not have existed uh, uh, if if that hadn't been done. Ruh-roh! (laughs) <laughs> wasn't intended so these this is facts compared to you know narrative mm. this guy actually says the government sanctioned and aided and abetted and took action to segregate previously integrated communities now do you get the feeling he's so saying people wanted to live with do you get the feeling he's saying that uh that was intentional or was just unintended consequences i think well, as you hear this next set of clips I think it becomes pretty clear that it was intentional to counter what Calvin said about we will be where we're at hundred years ago. If nothing, you know, we did things differently. Maybe if the government wouldn't have gotten involved, we would be at where we're at now a lot sooner. (laughs) Sure. Well, but that's also at this point, you know, that's just narrative. We don't really know, but maybe as we unfold the facts, we'll find out. Right. I mean, well, when you go in and create segregated projects, I mean, you count you. That was counterproductive. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. I'm mm-hmm. just taking sheer facts. But yeah, it, it is a little bit of reach there, uh, Space Jam reach. Um, but yeah, let's get into uh, part two. <laughs> and this pattern was created everywhere in the country. Cambridge, Massachusetts, we think of it as being a liberal area. The area near MIT was also an integrated community, about half black, half white. The Public Works Administration demolished housing uh, in that integrated neighborhood to build two separate projects, one for African Americans and one for whites. Well, this continued for the next 20 years. And uh, by the early 1950s, uh, we saw a development everywhere in the country that um, 
given that there were large numbers of vacancies in the white projects and long waiting lists in the black projects. Eventually, the situation became so conspicuous that all the projects were opened up to African Americans, and about the same time, uh, industry left the cities, and uh, there were fewer and fewer jobs for the people who were living in these public housing projects. They became poorer and poorer, and then for the first time in the in this about 1950, uh, public housing began to be a subsidized program for people who couldn't afford private housing, and almost all black at the time, and uh, without jobs and without hope, without opportunities, being concentrated in these downtown areas. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, uh, the federal government was subsidizing the movement of white families only to single-family homes in the suburbs. Suburbs, right. Oh, man, the history's coming back now. Hey, let, hey that's what a, what a raw deal. And let's, let's fully you know, flesh out this idea how did all the black people get to these cities in the first place? They came there to look into jobs during the great migration. Right. And then you take the jobs, move them out to the suburbs where you move all the white people to. There's no jobs in the city, in the inner city or where you always ask where did this term urban come from? This is it. <laughs> this is the birth of urban. Urban, suburban. <laughs> So you take the jobs and the nice houses and you move them out and then you leave. You say, okay, black people can have the projects, but then black people, you want the projects. No, no fathers. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Then there's that part. Yeah. Wow. So, so as you said, black, black men or black people are most conspiratorial. (laughs) Well, it's not really me. Uh, There's uh, I just no, thought no, it was I'm not you. Saying that it, I just thought it was no, you. What, no, right. But when I'm saying, when you see all these things falling one domino after another. You start to get really suspicious about stuff. Absolutely. Right. Was this by design, maybe? Right. Or was it just happenstance? And as you continue on, it's like, hold on. There can't be that many coincidences. Mm. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, that's the feeling. That's the sentiment. Yeah, of it course. can't be that many coincidences you trick us out of our natural habitat of uh agriculture and you know rural base you bring us to the city you snatch the jobs off and under us you move them out you limit our access to you know funding to buy single family homes and homes in the suburbs while you're catering to other people and then you you have the projects with no men in it I'm just saying, I mean, like when you stack all those on top of each other, it's it's very fishy. But I mean, but we have to I'm, what I'm doing, explaining how it became segregated in the first place. Sure. Because if you let people live where they want to live, people are naturally going to gravitate to, you know, what's closest to their job, what people align with them. You know, and as he as uh, uh, Richard Rothstein said, there were there were integrated communities without any uh, stimulus. To be to be so well, so and, um, and I'm I'm sure we'll get to it. Um, what mm-hmm. what comes to mind is okay. Let's just presume people are good, but this was a not in my backyard type of thing. It's like oh, you know, and and obviously, kind of, um, well, the literal uh, meaning of racist, which is well, they're just less than us, but we're gonna hook them up. We're gonna do good, but we'll just let them do it over there. It's literally racist. But at the time, probably just how they thought. Not not trying to say it's I, correct. I would tell you goggles, but 
We're so close. <laughs> we're we're going to get there. Okay, I'm sorry. All right. Let's let's get into part three. And the FHA, in order to uh, grant the, the guarantees the, for bank loans for these developers to build giant developments, they never could have assembled the capital to build a development with tens of thousands of homes uh, in one place. On their own, the Federal Housing Administration gave them guaranteed bank loans on condition that they sell no homes to African Americans and indeed required that the deed of every home in these developments uh, include a clause prohibiting resale or rental to African Americans. So there were many, many other policies that the federal government followed and state and local governments followed, but these two, the uh, uh, the, the Federal Housing Administration creation of the suburbs on a white-only basis and the uh, uh, Pub- Public Works Administration and succe- succeeding uh, housing in- agencies concentrating African Americans in central cities where they became poorer and poorer created the metropolitan landscape that we see today. You talk about the image that that we have of of African Americans. Well, white families, whites generally, look at the way we've concentrated African Americans, although they don't understand that it was we who concentrated them, uh, we the government of the the country. They look at African Americans living in in poverty without opportunity, and they assume that this is characteristic of African Americans rather than understanding that this is the product of an explicit government policy. Right on. I got that. That answers your question, right? It sure does. Yeah, it does. It does. So you you freeze these people out of suburbs saying, no, you can't sell the government now. You can't sell them houses. Right. And, you know, and the deed always has to stay white. And then you have no jobs in these communities. And then you overpopulate the, the projects and then don't offer the services like trash and those kind of things. It creates this image. I mean, to be honest with you, that's that's the imagery we have of third world countries, right? Yeah, like, yeah. they just can't get oh, their yeah. shit together. You know what I mean, that's <laughs> well, that's that's unfortunately now happening in every city across America with people, you know, camping everywhere. Same image, but what to what end? So this, it, let's say, this is you know a racist policy. It's clearly a, a horrible setup. To what end? What what was the benefit to the people doing this? What, what were they thinking? Like, we'll just they're here anyway. We can't. We can't literally throw them uh, overboard. So we'll just we'll just squish them here. Is 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 that what that was? It's creating the bottom. You have to have a yeah. bottom in society, just like you have to have a bottom in the world, right? We take all of our jobs that we don't want to be done here and that are not tied here to the land, like agriculture, but the the the. The making of these dollar store toys and these trinkets and things yeah, like yeah, that. But, but this over there. Yeah, but this is a bottom with no job, so that's it's not it's not even a productive bottom. Which made it easier for people to look like. See, we got to go back to the killer wasp. When you're saying, okay, we need to create people that, and this is an analogy I draw. It's like if you're like I'm a Cowboys fan, right? Um, when I talk, if I was a true fan, a fanatic, I would talk in terms we and us. And did you see how we played yesterday? Mm-hmm. And you know, we we did pretty good. We we we. Sure. That's how these newly inducted whites were. It's like, yeah, let them come in, be fans of the wasp, you know, and portray themselves as white, and they, you know, they'll feel like they're part of the team, but they're really not. You know, they're, they're really not part of the team. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Mm-hmm. And what it does is build this buffer class 
or the mud seal, and we're going to get there in another episode, but it builds this buffer class between the actual bottom and the top. Okay. Yep. Now we have been through that. Yes, I I agree. (laughs) So, I mean, what I'm saying is it's, it's, it's everybody moving on up, stepping on the person underneath. And if you don't have someone to step on, then find one. Right. And the easiest way to keep the bottom clearly defined is if you do it off for skin color and so-called race. <laughs> yeah, that does make it kind of easy, doesn't it? Right. So, I mean, this is the killer wasp at work. And it's like, oh, yeah, the Irish, oh, we hated them, but come on in. The Italian, we hated them, but come on in. And now right. it's with the Hispanics. Hispanics, we hated them, but now come on in. Long as you can portray the whites, the white, the wasp de- definition of whiteness, their ideals, you know, their uh, principles, and all those things. And long as you agree that the bottom has to stay the bottom, you can't help the bottom. I mean that that'll get your your car revoked. Right. I know it sounds very sinister, but and it's not even the subject, the key subject of this episode. But we got to understand how segregation happen especially in major cities um and what was the solution for it so i think we stopped at three we can go into four now there were many many african-americans in the early uh, 1950s late 1940s who could have afforded to buy those homes the single-family homes that the governments were creating in places like westlake and um, uh, san lorenzo or others in in this area and throughout the country levittown is probably the best example of east of new york city and well-known many african-americans could have afforded to buy those homes they were very inexpensive they were um uh, cost about seven eight nine thousand dollars at the time Uh, that's about a hundred thousand dollars in today's money about twice national median income working class families of either race could have afforded to buy those homes african-americans were prohibited from doing so required to continue living in urban areas, renting apartments, either in the public housing or in private market. And the whites were subsidized. The subsidy to whites was so great that they could leave public housing, which, as I said, was uh, not for poor people at the time. It was for working class families. They could leave public housing and move into single family homes in suburbs like Levittown or Westlake or San Lorenzo and pay less in their monthly VA and FHA mortgages. Uh, and other housing costs pay less for housing in these single-family homes than they were paying for rent in public housing. Yes, I, I recall some of this from uh, previous episodes. <clears throat> so we're comparing apples to apples here. Two right. men, one black, one white, same family, kids, same income. But one had access to move to this nice neighborhood uh, subsidized by the government and the other ones restricted. I mean, completely restricted. So, I mean, I'm hoping I'm laying this, the integration part, I mean, the segregation part out. Oh, because oh it's yeah. Because going to be no, important definitely. to the integration part. Wh- which, um, but, wh- which episode was it, just for people's reference, where we talked about this specifically, about the homes not the, not being allowed to sell the home? That it was on the it deed? Was the white, white fl- it was the white flight when I can't... The, oh, it was white uh, flight? Starting okay. to rent. Yeah, right. I think it was white flight, but that... But this is what Michelle Obama was talking about in her in her episode, right. in the episode herself of of white flight. Um, but yeah, this is. I don't want to harp on this too long because, like I said, this is not the key. But what you're starting to do is understand not you because you've been doing the work. You've been about the business of doing the work. 
<laughs> Thank you, Mo. Th- thanks for acknowledging me. Yes. <laughs> um, no, but what it does is if you got all this pressure, I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is building this ecology of the person that will take the deal of integration. If you've been suppressed and, you know, oppressed and forced to live in these um, not so great conditions, it's either go back to in their mind. I'm just trying to make make everybody human here. Right. It's either go back to the South where there's visible oppressive racism of like Jim Crow. Or if I stay in the North, I have to stay where it's not segregated by you know, your sheer will to work. It's just like, oh, all the blacks lump them together. So you have criminal blacks, you have low class blacks, you have, you know, all these with working class and middle income and middle income blacks. Um, so now I'm just setting up how integration sounded like a good idea, <laughs> you know, on its face value when you get the chance to move out. But there's always a catch. But before we move there, let's just slip, uh, wrap up with the last clip, clip from Richard Rothstein, number five. So we created this situation and African-American neighborhoods became more and more overcrowded uh, as well as uh, depressed because of lack of employment opportunities, more and more overcrowded because they were restricted and where they could move. There were no opportunities outside urban areas. As they became more overcrowded, uh, conditions deteriorated in the communities. Uh, city services typically declined at that point, uh, less garbage collection. They became slums and whites looked at these communities and decided that African-Americans were slum dwellers uh, and uh, therefore should be avoided. But this was all the product of government policy. This was not uh, something that happened naturally. It was not something that happened by accident. It was not, as we commonly think, something de facto. It was a legal creation, just as the segregation of schools or the segregation of restaurants or the segregation of uh, transportation uh, was done by government in the 20th century. Bastards, I tell you. What were they thinking? <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm glad he made that point, and it's going to come up later. But what we have to look at is people that say, okay, we want it separate but equal, because this is going to be a big part of the show, too. Uh, people that say separate but equal, what the, what the things they wanted to be integrated was opportunity to these loans, opportunity to GI bills, opportunity to have um, the same schools. So if you're going to build two schools, one for black children, one for white children, they should be identical. Right. But that's not how the separate but equal uh, idea, you know, and legislation played out. So it's not that we wanted to, you know, and it, 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 I, I had this conversation with my mother. And this is kind of where this episode, it was kind of brewing after I had this conversation with her. Okay, I was now, like, Mom, what we all... You got to yeah. promise me you do your mom's voice. Otherwise, it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> Please. I was like, Mom, well, I said, what was y'all thinking? I was like, well, white pies that sweeter or, or white coffee that hotter? And she said, child, you know, we just wanted to be seen as humans. And I'm like, I can get it. You know, I mean, so it was more of not wanting to be in the restaurant but allowed to go in there you know they didn't want to be restricted so i think this we oversimplify with this world war counter and it's like <clears throat> they were just dying to get a piece of that pie or you know uh, literally or dying to get a cup of that coffee right. it was more i'm human see me and really the bigger conversation was 
here was the trade off, and this is where this is where I get sinister, and just just in my mind, because just how we just set it up, all this has been government sanctioned. So mm-hmm. just in my mind, they said, okay, you want the white school and the white books, you got to take the white teachers along with it. It wasn't that, and then I, and I say this because my dad was his last year of school was his first year of integration. So imagining, mm-hmm. I mean, I know I say tell these things, but this this is my perspective. Right. And it's hold on, I went to school for 11, 12 years with all black people. Then you just want to thrust me into this integration experiment. Right. When you could just easily bring a load of books over here, <laughs> you know, bring a can- couple of cans of paint over here. Right. Um, there goes the separate but equal that that just ended right there and said, OK, separate but equal, but at our place. Right. Which. A lot of black people at that time didn't want to go to white schools, no matter how they make it seem like, oh, we want it to be bust or, you know, we, you know, you see, and this is where imagery and narrative come in. You know, I've always speak about the little girl carrying her books and white people on both on both files, mm-hmm. just yelling and screaming. It's like, why would I want to put my child through that? You know, but I mean, that's the narrative. And, mm-hmm. and I, I know I'm dragging it out. And this is where the narrative got picked up by the media. And this is a throwback clip from show 12, Media, MLK, and Civil Rights Movement. As a story, the Civil Rights Movement had it all. Good versus evil, drama, social upheaval. But at first, America's major media ignored it, especially in the South. It was our responsibility to find a way to dramatize the issue. Congressman John Lewis says that the movement's leaders realized to bring change, they needed to reach white Americans. How did you do that? As a movement, we literally put our bodies on the line. Influence on the civil rights coverage. Hank Klibanoff co-wrote The Race Beat, a book about the media and the movement. Well, race was a big story in the South beginning in the 40s and 50s. It's just that no one knew about it. Finally, by 1957, major northern newspapers discover the drama and the story. How do you feel about integrated passengers? The television networks followed. Even major southern media paid attention to the open hatred. You've got to keep the white and the black and the violent response to peaceful protest. If you're going to beat us, beat us in the light of day. Beat us while the camera's on. This was Selma, Alabama, 1965, among the bloodied John Lewis. American people could not stand it. To see young children and old women being knocked down by fire hoses and chased by police dogs. Nice story, as they said in the beginning of the clip. Nice story. But that's what he said. They had it all, you know, and he even said we had to dramatize. Mm-hmm. So this is where people with um, a certain motive and they were being steered, I believe being steered, and I'm going to lay out some evidence here, um, that integration wasn't really a demand that black people were making. This is all, this is completely all narrative. If I truly believe I've talked to enough older black people and they would say, Hey, we could have went to schools and had the same books and chalk. And at least if it was parody there, mm-hmm. not even if it was the same books, but okay. Our books is like a couple of years older than their edition. 
my dad used to say they used to have to go to school and piece together books mm. just so they had proper materials to start the school year with. So, I mean, I like, I, what I, okay, let me explain to you what I'm doing here. I'm trying to diffuse, and we always talk about the wars, right? It's the mm-hmm. gender war, the race war, and sure. the generational war. And this one right here is an intra-racial, intra-racial war between the generations because the younger people look at the older people like, you were stupid to get spit on and hit in the head for a cup of coffee and a slice of pie. I mean, that's what they boiled it down to, right. you know? Well, that's what and, the younger generation perhaps has been taught in school through other ways, you know, through the through the this, stories they've been told, the way it went down. The stories by who? Uh, 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 about slavery and... Uh, no, I said by who, by who, not about, but by who's telling the stories? The media. Well, of that's course. That's why I led the show off. <laughs> that's course. why I led the show off yeah. with the, the clips I played right. That with uh, Calvin Baker. Right. He's just come in to write another s- story. Not facts, not proof. I mean, this is what Richard Rothstein is. He's laying out proof. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other gentleman, his name, uh, uh, Jerome Bennett, he's laying out proof. But he's like, no, 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 no. We have to indoctrinate the children to believe that these mean white people, not the government, but the citizens, wanted segregation. Right. Um, that the, 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 that America that, was inherently a bunch of bad fuckers. They were just bad people. We had nothing good in mind. Right. And then the average white person like, I'm just going to work and, exactly. you know, trying to, you know, live my life. So, and, but then the younger black people look at the older black people. It's like, shut up, boomer. You say yeah. you were dumb enough to, you know, yeah. we ha- could have had our own schools. Yeah. So I'm, what I'm doing is diffusing and unpacking this narrative so we can move forward. Yeah, in fact, in fact it's quite not how it was laid out. Quite the opposite ahead, to please. what we to what we heard uh, earlier uh, with Baker. That two generations. If you if you don't stop this, if you let it go on for the two generations for everyone to integrate it again, it's only going to get two generations ro- worse exponentially. Because that's what we're seeing. It's like boom, 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 all the way through the generations. No, and and it winds up with well, you boomers were stupid. What the next generation will be even worse. And then we have this super weapon called social media. Yeah. Like, I mean, we're talking about television here. Yeah. Back in the 60s with the media. Now you take this super weapon and loaded the nar- load that super weapon up with this narrative. And we're going to be, we- I'm, that's what this Facebook show was talking about. And, and I'm, something I missed from that Facebook show. I mean, not Facebook, excuse me, Netflix show. Oh, you mean the social media? Yeah. The social, the, you, the, the social dilemma. Yeah. Social dilemma. It's casting spells. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yes. that's what they, yes. they actually use that terminology. Yeah. In, which in, on yeah. the nocebo show, we lay that out, you know. <laughs> so like, true. We, we, we're from the future, dude. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, so what we got to do now is I, I spoke about how black people started voting democratically. And that was with... Uh, Nixon and JFK and JFK bailing Nixon out, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it was a piece of the story I left out on the cuttering room floor. So this is kind of like a throwback clip because it's from the same piece, but we didn't really examine this portion of it. And this is Jeffrey Frank, a senior editor at the New York uh, at the New Yorker. Uh, and he wrote uh, the book Ike and Dick, a portrait of strained political marriage. 
So he's going to speak about Richard Nixon and MLK. And, and it was devastating. The most devastating thing of all for Nixon, by the way, was, a, was an act of cowardice. When Dr. When Dr. King was arrested on a totally trumped-up charge um, and, and put in a paddy wagon and, and chains to be taken to Reesville Prison in Georgia, Coretta Scott King called both campaigns, the Kennedy campaign and the Nixon campaign, said, would you please help get him out? You know, there was a, the, the violence against um, African Americans in the South in Georgia at that time was horrible. And, and she really thought he was going to be killed. And Kennedy, uh, the Kennedy people stepped up, and Nixon's, Nixon told his advisors that I would just be grandstanding to interfere with the legal process. And King, it, that was it. King later said that he had a, you know, we were in touch. We were, I thought we were friends. Um, and and, and, and it, he was, it showed a real moral, a real moral lapse. And, uh, and, if, and if Nixon had done it, um, Kennedy was sent, by the way, the Kennedy people sent out a, a, a campaign uh, flyer that said, uh, 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 no comment, Nixon versus the candidate with a heart. And, that, and, that, and, that, and, and if, if Nixon had carried the black vote and he, by the way, he still got 32% of the black vote, unlike today when, they, when, they, when Republicans get like 2% of the black vote. But uh, he would have won. He would have won, probably would have won at least, at least two more states, and, and everything would have changed. And- wow. Yeah. <laughs> hey, a question about this. Um, who was this again? Who was speaking? That's Jeffrey Frank. He's a senior editor at The New Yorker. You know, I was just listening to his cadence. <clears throat> You know, something that I learned from uh, Dvorak, I guess, and No Agenda. Listening to how he mm-hmm. spoke, he sounds eerily like John Brennan, the head of the CIA. The same cadence. He does. I was wondering the who The same I was wondering cadence, who man. That guy might be a spook. Or at least hang, <laughs> well, out, hang out with him. Well, if he was, uh, well, speaking of spooks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. <clears throat> Uh, and what we mean by that spies, we don't want to trigger anybody. I mean, because that could be taken another no, way. No, this um, is uh, this is the ins- no, I, no, inside description I, of, of of spies, spook. Yeah, uh, spies. I, I know we have to do that though, because we might have some new listeners, and we don't want to, you know, trigger them. Uh, but it's funny you bring that up because I, that made me start to think when I heard this clip again. I said, "Why would MLK think that him and Nixon were friends?" That's. I mean, that's. That's a that's a stretch. Like you know, you're just meeting somebody and y'all right. talking about policies or possible political workings. to say he thought that uh, him and Nixon were friends. Now we know Daddy King, Martin Luther King Senior, you know, saying had strong ties to the Republican Party. Right. But it was just like how how did Nixon and King King Junior meet? Um, so I started doing some digging as I always do. And and one thing I always say tell Adam is just let people on inside baseball. I said, the longer you give me to prepare, the better the show will be. So this is... <laughs> That's why I always say, take a month, Mo. Do whatever you want. I'm good to go. You just tell me when to show up. Uh, we're, we're good. So I unearthed this little piece, this little nugget. MLK Nixon won. This photo of MLK and Richard Nixon was once taboo. Now, see it in Tampa. By Maggie Duffy, Tampa Bay Times, January 17th, 2020. Griffith J. Davis saw the historic moment happen and clicked his camera. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., emerging civil rights leader, fresh off the Montgomery bus boycotts, was talking to then-Vice President Richard Nixon. They were flanked by their wives, Coretta Scott King and Patricia Nixon. It was March 1957. Newly independent Ghana was celebrating with ceremonies in its capital, Accra. Nixon was there leading the official U.S. delegation. Ghana's Prime Minister Kwame Nkrumah invited the kings. 
Davis, an African-American audiovisual officer for the U.S. Foreign Service stationed in Africa, had been sent to document Nixon's first visit to the continent. During their talk, Nixon invited Dr. King to Washington, D.C. to discuss the civil rights movement. But fears ran high that the image could increase the tension of race relations. This meeting would have been too volatile to have taken place in the United States, according to the U.S. Department of State's website, Share America. And the photo was not published there at the time. The photo is being publicly displayed for the first time in Tampa as part of the exhibition Griff Davis and Langston Hughes, Letters and Photographs, 1947 to 1967, A Global Friendship. Hmm. <laughs> global Friendship. Yeah. Now, this guy, Griffin J. Davis... I'm like, who is this? I've never heard of him before. A black, a black man, a so-called black man. He doesn't even have a um, wiki page. He's got a lot of archives and, of photos, but right, right. And they, and they said in there he was a um, foreign officer, foreign civil officer. Uh, and he worked with the um, NSAID. Oh, which I've heard. you no you, you, USAID. Excuse me, USAID. Yes, USAID, which I've heard you mention before. Yeah, which is uh, essentially the payment channel um, for the CIA. They're closely related. USAID, uh, they're the the money guy. They're the the bad guys for bag as in B-A-G for anything that needs to be done. So as they laid this story out, and that was read by uh, James Dennifer. Thank you, James. Yes. Um, (laughs) James. But... um, as she as she read what was written in, uh, I think it was the Tampa Bay Times, I believe, there was like, oh, he was just, ha- Griffin J. Davis just happened to be there and snapped a picture that captured this meeting between MLK and Nixon. Well, it's, <laughs> I had to go and dig up um, the history on Mr. Griffin J. Davis. Yeah. Griffin J. Davis won. I'm Dorothy Davis. I'm the daughter of Griffith J. Davis, a pioneer African-American photographer, journalist, and diplomat slash U.S. Foreign Service officer. I'm here to tell you a bit about his work, but more importantly, I want you to focus on the stories that he told through these different lenses. My father was born in Atlanta, Georgia, literally on the campus of Morehouse College. He ultimately graduated from Morehouse College. He went to World War II. He was a Buffalo soldier in Italy, and he was a photographer there. Hmm, okay. Now, Griffin J. Davis is either one of the most interesting men that we never heard of, which we should hear of, I mean, if he's on the up and up, or there's something very nefarious about him just being being around. Um, I don't, I I, I don't, I don't care what you say, yeah. Mo. A guy like this has mm-hmm. no wiki page. That's a problem. Oh, let me let me add to that. Now, this is a writing from his son. It says, from a personal perspective, Davis' parents knew Dr. King and his father has been uh, had been at the original 1963 March on Washington and Selma in 1965. Okay, so this guy, Griffin, Day, J., uh, Griffin J. Davis, is popping up. Now, he's working for the government, mm-hmm. but he's popping up at the March on Washington and Selma. And it says, during the conference uh, presentation, Davis shared rare photos of Dr. King taken in in the 1950s by his father it sounds like this guy was either and then he goes to he was at uh, morehouse at the same time that king was there Mm -hmm. after coming back for working on work on being um 
after being uh, in the military for a while. He comes back to Morehouse. And she even said he was born at Morehouse. Let's not forget Rockefeller funded Morehouse. Yeah. 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 Mm. I'm like, who is this guy that snatched this, uh, this historic picture, but then they don't show it until 2020. It, 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 It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make, it makes all the sense to me, but it doesn't make sense. Right. That, like you said, everybody has a wiki page. Yeah, but this and, guy doesn't. Yeah, the, and this is and, and I actually if, if griffisdavis.com, uh that's probably where you got the link to the Tampa Bay Times. I'm putting that in the show. I'm just putting stuff uh-huh. in the show notes. And yeah, that is that is a great picture by the way. That is a great picture. Who else is there? Oh, that's Coretta. Okay. Yeah, both wives and that came out January 1st of 2020, I think. It just came out. This January is the first 17th, time we're seeing yeah. it. So people mm. think we're covering history here. Now we're unearthing something new. <laughs> we're unearthing something new. Um, and it was how I want to remind people that we're not talking about MLK the person. Let's let's get this clear. We're talking about MLK the product and how he's used by the media um, as a trigger, as told to us by uh, Chronicles of Judah one four four. The Caucasian liberals have a lot invested in the image of Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King is a trigger that they use to control American blacks. Remember, remember, whenever American blacks start to get out of control, they bring up Martin Luther King because that's how they rein you in. You got to be more like Dr. King. You have to follow his message. Right. You have to want to be with me. You have to want to hold my hand. Once again, Martin Luther King was a pawn of the globalists. They utilize him to bring you black people into the fold of globalism, a.k.a. Luciferianism. The economic system of Luciferianism is communism. (laughs) Um, So here's the question, though. So this has clearly, Uh clearly been put out for a reason. I don't think it's just like, oh, my, we found this. But what's the benefit of Richard Nixon? Who does that benefit? I don't know. And I don't know who's pulling the strings here. And what it seems like here is it to me. And this is just my, just my, what I took away from, I'm still processing this. Mm -hmm. It seems like you had Griffin, Griffin, uh, J Davis was like, Hey, you keep an eye on King, you know, make sure he's no, he's not getting around too many radicals. Mm -hmm. Um, that kind of thing. And, you know, when he shows up with Nixon and that's more, hey, King, we can work with inside the parameters of capitalism and Americanism and not that communist mess that you're being uh, persuaded with. Mm -hmm. And I think that Griffin J. Davis kind of lost, probably lost his asset. I mean, in a way, because, you know, he was I'm sure he was. You know, a Morehouse guy. He's a Morehouse guy. Hey, bro. You know, you know that kind of thing. You right. know, you know the boule thing. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> but I think that that's how he, he was making. And then now, when you have Republicans interested in the black vote again, this Nixon story pops out out of nowhere. Yeah. Hmm. This is this is how I'm just taking it. I mean, I'm, no, I'm it's, just, it's, it's it's I love this, and I'm just I'm just looking at this. So his daughter put it out. She's the one that that founded yes. the the Griffin uh, Griffith J Davis uh, uh, archives, 
Yeah, and she was the one speaking in the uh, in the video right. as well on um, the last clip that we played right. um, before the Chronicle of Judas went. Yeah. So it's obviously King Daddy King and and Nixon that had their relationship, but Kennedy came through and got him out in a pinch. You know, when he was in a pinch, and I think Nixon just didn't want to be bothered with it because like, eh, we'll get 30, 40% of the black vote. And just look how divided the black vote was then. Right. Even then, I mean, Republicans got 30% and uh, Democrats got 60% even after getting King out of office. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just showing you. So now we have to look at the relationship between what we're doing here. We're building how they get to integration. And we've seen the media picked up on the story. And now the Kennedys uh, see um, MLK as a viable uh, resource. So I want to get into uh, a little background on the gentleman that's going to be speaking next. And that's Mr. Glenn Ford. And this is his bio. Now joining us to talk about Kennedy is Glenn Ford. Glenn is the executive editor of Black Agenda Report. He was the founder and host of America's Black Forum, the first nationally syndicated black news interview show on commercial television. He's also the author of The Big Lie, an analysis of U.S. media coverage of the Granada invasion. Mm. Thanks very much for joining us again, Glenn. Oh, man, that's another thing I need to look at, the Granada invasion. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for reminding me. Well, this is where we got to be careful about color and colorism and, you know, saying who's black and not black. Because when you see Mr. Glenn Ford, he's very fair-skinned. Mm. Um, but all his life, he, even though he's a Marxist, I mean, he's self-proclaimed Marxist, but he's not a cultural Marxist like the people of today. He's like the old-school Marxist, which, I mean, we disagree on that ideology. You know, I'm a capitalist uh, in, the, in the true sense of it, not the corporatist form that we have now. Uh, but if you can buy one for sale for two, best man wins kind of thing. Um, with that said, he gets into this notion that Kennedy brothers thought that the civil rights movement was a nuisance at, at best. So you paint a picture in your view of the world as Kennedy campaigns and becomes president. Well, you know, it's generally understood that uh, 1960 is the year uh, that blacks, uh, be, that the Democratic Party uh, got a lock on the black vote. Uh, many people seem to think that happened just by magic, uh, because of the Kennedy charm, or because the Kennedys were such uh, quintessential liberals, and of course they were not. But it's much more more complicated uh, than uh, that. Uh, Although the black vote had been leaning Democratic in those places where blacks could vote since Roosevelt's era, many blacks were still uh, Republicans, and the Democratic Party was still weighted down uh, with the Dixiecrats, the uh, racist Democrats from Mm. the South. And in 1952 and 1956, uh, when Adlai Stevenson was running for president, uh, as as the Democrat, uh, that didn't change. And the National Party did not distance itself from an increasingly uh, vocal and racist uh, and uh, 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 white power structure down there. So the Kennedys, you know, they saw MLK for what he was, a way to make inroads with the black vote. Right. And the funny thing is now, it's like we're at the complete opposite other spectrum you had the republicans who pretty much had the black vote uh and they took it for granted and it hurt them now in 2020 you have the democrats who have the black vote and they're taking it for granted 
And some like that's what I was saying. Someone could easily swoop in with some kind of deal, yep, <clears throat> some kind of gesture, and 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 destabilize that. So, well, so Marianne this, this, Williamson this, tried. <laughs> Which I would say again, Mary Ann Williamson's plan sounds a lot like Trump's plan. Yeah, it's the same amount of money. Down it's to just, the number. He put a he put a platinum <laughs> a platinum sticker on it. <laughs> yeah, he put the, he put the platinum on it. And I want to say one more thing: nineteen fifty seven is going to be a key year because let's think back. That's when Nixon and MLK met. Mm-hmm. So it seems like they were grooming this relationship for three years, and that's probably why MLK was like, "Dude, you gonna leave me leave me hanging in jail?" Right. Um. And so when the Kennedys came along, he's like, I got to get out of jail because <clears throat> let's be clear. His life was in danger. Yeah. Being in jail. I mean, you could wake up dead very easily in jail, <laughs> in jail where he was at in Georgia. Um, but let's get into uh, Kennedy Brothers, too. In 1957, uh, with the desegregation of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, something really extraordinary happened. Oh, brother. Uh, crowds of thousands of white folks, many of them uh, women, uh, tried to block the integration of the school. They screamed, they hollered, they threatened, they cursed, and all of that was done in front of national television cameras. A very, very embarrassing situation for the President of the United States, who was trying to uh, project uh, the U.S. Uh, in opposition to Soviet competition uh, as being such a liberal uh, place uh, to live and uh, the home of democracy and uh, the land of the brave and such. And it was very embarrassing. So Eisenhower sent in troops to Little Rock in 1957. And this had a tremendous impact on black public opinion because this was the first time since Reconstruction that the federal government had intervened on the side of black people. Eisenhower's uh stock went up in black America sky high. And so as we move into the 1960 presidential election, Ah. there is great fear among the Democrats who know it's going to be a very tight race (laughs) that Richard Nixon, Eisenhower's vice president, now hitting the ticket, may inherit some of that tremendous goodwill that Eisenhower got uh, because of his intervention in Little Rock uh, in 1960. Uh, you know, nothing good ever comes out of Little Rock. It's always trouble with Little Rock. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Amazing how that I happens. will say I had some of the best barbecue I ever had in my life in Little Rock. So there no, is one no, thing. I've, I've been to Little Rock. You know, it's just it's, uh, no. like it's weird, man. It's like there's just some notable things that happen there. And, and notice the year, 1957. So now we have Ike. Sending in the on the federal troops yeah. in 1957 until Little Rock. At the same time, MLK is meeting with Nixon, so that they have this thing pretty much sold up. Yeah, except for they fumbled the ball. They fumbled the ball at the one yard line by not getting King. And I don't know if that's because they looked at King like, well, he's not a major figure, or and you know what? They really underestimated. They underestimated the power of his father. His father had juice. In Atlanta with the black churches in the South. Do you think that uh, even back then they considered it didn't really matter as long as they had the image of MLK? Didn't really have to have the man himself? No, well, I think they said, well, we we stepped in in Little Rock. 
We met King in 57. He's cool. We don't, it's, it's, let's not upset our white voters. And if I'm just like, I'm getting inside their head, let's not upset our white voters by not overplaying our hand, mm-hmm. but we still have good favor. And I'm thinking how the Republicans are thinking. And, and they left the door wide open. If I'm just putting myself in King Senior's shoes, but we talked about him and I, I think there's some things going on with him in the background, but in his trip to Nazi Germany in 1933, but you know, that's another story for another day. <laughs> I think when he was like, you left my son hanging in jail. Uh, that doesn't speak much for our relationship. No. And I think the Republicans like, we've done so much. What more do you want us to do? And that opened the door for Kennedy to come right in. And, and, and it was said, and this has been quoted from uh, King Sr. Uh, he said, um, "My and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. But it was that basically my daughter Coretta is crying. Uh, and he was like, Kennedy's, what can you do? And they made the call to get King uh, King Jr. out of jail. And that gave um, King Sr. the motivation to go out and sway the whole South black vote to Kennedy. And let's not forget who were the three pe- people on the wall? MLK, yep. JFK, yep. and Jesus of the white variety. Yeah. That's who's on black people's walls. So that go, that speaks, <laughs> that lets you know how strong the narrative of the Kennedys was yeah. to the black community at the time. Wow. That's so More much. More narrative. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> narrative and so much analogy and so much, uh, so recognizable too. Yeah, but it's narrative because as uh, Glenn Ford is laying out and the title of the, this is the YouTube title of the uh, the show I got it from, the Kennedy brothers thought the civil rights movement was a nuisance as best. So, I mean, from, <laughs> yes. I mean these are very studied people that he's like, God, I got it. I mean, did, what me, I'm, I'm just taking liberties here, but didn't we, us getting them out of jail enough? Obviously it wasn't because, I mean, King wanted civil rights. And integration. That was the big ask of the civil rights was integration. Uh, and let's just get into, I guess, part three. Uh, certainly this this issue of, of their attitude towards the civil rights movement, they get a lot, they meaning JFK and RFK, get a lot of credit towards <clears throat> promoting this and being sort of the beginning of support for the civil rights movement and, and the legislation that then came under mm-hmm. Johnson. And they get, basically is they're the beginning of the sort of modern version of Democratic Party liberalism. Uh, you don't buy that. No, I don't buy that. And the literature actually shows that both Kennedy brothers uh, saw the civil rights movement as a nuisance at best. Uh, remember, the uh, the FBI's uh, spy campaign against Martin Luther King uh, began under Robert Kennedy's watch. He was aware of it, and as tight as those two brothers were, they talked about everything together, uh, that we can assume that John Kennedy was also aware that the FBI was not only spying on Martin Luther King, but was trying uh, to destroy his reputation, that the FBI had King in uh, its sights. 
The march on Washington, uh, Kennedy considered a kind of a victory for himself. Uh, the, the literature, at any rate, says that the, they considered it a good example of managed protest and that they, they negotiated with the leaders of the civil rights movement to keep the, the protest contained. Well, what is that story? Yeah, that's uh, Black Lives Matter uh, version 0.1. Hello. <laughs> I love this. I'm learning all kinds of things today. <laughs> but the, the the overarching thing is it's not about what's true. It's no, about who not. has the stronger narrative, who mm. has the stronger story, who has the right. ties with the media. Right. And the media is pushing. I mean, they love they love uh, JFK. How about this for a sec? Griffin, Gri- uh, Griffith Davis. <laughs> You know, he worked uh-huh. for he worked for Ebony. Yep, so the Johnson I'm, family. Yep, and I'm sure that it was important to uh, have someone who had that connection and could uh, uh, perpetrate narrative through those channels. And you, you know what? You know who I see him as, and I brought his name up before, but we really haven't gotten to him. It's a guy named Gar- Gordon Parks, and Gordon Parks also worked for the gov- government. Little bit, little be known to the public uh but he was the one that will follow around mlk some of the most iconic uh not mlk but malcolm x and and muhammad ali Mm -hmm. some of the iconic pictures from them came from garden parks and he was uh represented as a figure in american gangster as the guy with the big mustache uh giving frank lucas the uh all the advice (laughs) so this i think um griffin J. davis was the counter uh, or the you no, know, the the opposite, but equal to uh, Garden Parks. Go read Garden Parks books. Very, very. I used to have a lot of respect for him until um, I found out that he he did a lot of uh, snooping and spying, and his yeah. camera was always in the right place at the right time, mm-hmm. just like Griffin J. J. Mm-hmm. Davis, mm-hmm. as just an aside. But let's not forget Hoover was operating under Kennedy, if I'm not mistaken. And that was the ultimate, well, you know, it's Hoover that's doing the investigation of King, not Kennedy. So that allowed people to, even yeah. though Hoover was a black man, a, self, a self-loathing black man. Just waiting for that one to pop up. Yeah. I had to do it. I'm sorry. But he was. And, um, and, and by the way, for people who are new to the show, oh, Mo, do you remember what episode that was? in One of the early ones, pre-20, I guess. That was the color that was the colorism. colorism like i said i have to do better about then it's they weave in and out so much that it was it was the colorism uh when i believed it i laid that story out but um yeah so that was the that was the get kennedy off the hook it's hoover you know hoover hoover the one that was investigating uh marcus garvey and go down the list you know it wasn't right. tweet kennedy you know i mean black people love jfk Seriously, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, you could ask a lot of black people, where were you at when Jeff? And they can yeah. tell you, and they they were <laughs> they were emotionally and psychologically impacted by you know uh, by his death, and and actually Obama had a lot of uh, remi- reminded a lot of people Ken- of Kennedy esque, as we say, Kennedy esque features. Yes, that's it. That's it. Uh, and just the way he carried himself with, you know, the wife and the kids and that kind of thing. Very, very, very good politicians. Um, but with that said, I guess we can wrap up with uh, Glenn Ford and uh, part four. 
and it was a high profile management, uh, uh, so high a profile management uh, that uh, Malcolm X called it the farce on Washington and uh, railed constantly against uh, those uh, big six leaders, as he called the uh, civil rights pantheon of the time, uh, allowing themselves to be manipulated by uh, the white Democrat in the White House and allowing Kennedy to put a cream in the coffee, as uh, Malcolm used to put it. Whatever one judges their intent or motivation, uh, were there some positive accomplishments of the Kennedy administration in terms of either civil rights or social equality legislation? Well, he did pass a a modest, uh, I believe it was by executive uh, order, uh, update of existing very modest uh, uh, civil rights uh, apparatus. Uh, But no, nothing substantial. Uh, He's usually credited uh, with creating uh, the tone of uh, cooperation, uh, of of non-hostility that would uh, allow the civil uh, rights forces uh, to organize without the federal government being a big obstacle so that the uh, effort could be concentrated on uh, the real uh, opposition uh, down south. So if you notice, even the interviewer, and I, don't, I, I didn't catch his name, he tries to redeem Kennedy because this guy, Glenn Ford, just shot, it, <laughs> shot him with the cancel cannon, basically. <laughs> what? Because <laughs> um, he's like, wait, 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 wait. Uh, Kennedy, we got to save that imagery. You know, he he's still a viable uh, tool, which I would say this. Now that it just comes to my mind. I haven't seen Kennedy that much anymore. In, good, in good politics point. Good or point. political good point is it because he's problematic due to the women or people actually know what he's about due to race i mean because i mean you used to that was you no know, he was brought up every four years um and even president's day was more like about kennedy but you don't hear much about him anymore but also did obama really refer to kennedy that much no i don't think so either he, may, he was compared to him but i i, I think Perhaps the idea was to always to have to have a new Kennedy, and that's what Obama was supposed to be. Um, oh, swap swap it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ch- it makes chocolate, more sense. Chocolate dip Kennedy, chocolate Kennedy, you. chocolate covered <laughs> Kennedy, and, and you got and he's still alive. You know, we can still uh, parade him out and get him to do stuff for us. Got it. Uh, <clears throat> speaking of, let's pick up where Glenn Ford left off, and he mentioned Malcolm X. And the black coffee analogy with cream. So I, I guess let's go and listen to that clip. It's just like when you got some coffee that's too black, which means it's too strong. What you do? You integrate it with cream. You make it weak. If you pour uh, too much cream in, you won't even know you ever had coffee. It used to be hot, it becomes cool. It used to be strong, it becomes weak. It used to wake you up, now it'll put you to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) This is the point, this is the danger of too much integration because it becomes co-opting. It's like, yeah, let's come in. Oh, now we're going to tell you how to run it. <clears throat> but one of the greatest pieces of art 
that was used to push a narrative of integration. And we covered this before, I think in the same episode, uh, with, uh, no man, not, not no man in the house, but, um, white flight. That was episode 14. 14. Mm-hmm. Um, right. This is a raisin in the sun plot summary one. In Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun, a younger family of five lives in a tiny, dark, infested apartment on Chicago's south side, sometime between 1945 and the present of 1959. The whole family eagerly awaits a $10,000 life insurance check for the work-related death of Big Walter, Mama's husband and the family's patriarch. Walter Lee Younger, a dissatisfied chauffeur in his mid-30s, wants to invest in a liquor store. In the introduction, he mentions news of another bombing, and he talks finances with his wife, Ruth. Ruth and Benita, Walter's younger sister, both recognize Mama as the one in charge of the insurance money. As the rising action begins, Walter tries to convince her to finance his investment, but Mama's against selling liquor. She wants to support Benita's plan to attend medical school. She's also thinking about buying a house. The family encourages Benita to pursue her wealthy suitor, George Murchison, but Benita finds him shallow. Another suitor, Nigerian classmate Joseph Asagai, helps Benita explore her African heritage. The check arrives, and Ruth reveals she's pregnant with an unplanned child. To Mama's dismay, Ruth has scheduled an abortion. In the climax, Mama uses part of the settlement money to make a down payment on a house. Ruth is at first overjoyed, but then shocked to learn the house is in Clybourne Park, a white neighborhood. Mm. A lot to unpack on that clip. So we have this 1950s uh, play, and it ended up coming up, becoming a movie. Yeah, it was a, a um, Sidney Poitier uh, yes, uh, play. Yes, very, um, very famous. Mm-hmm. And just for a little inside baseball, my dad actually played the role of Walter in a... Uh, rendition at the community center mm-hmm. and he man, he went he went all in on it i mean like he did a great job i got to give him credit on that but that's why this story resonates with me so much one you got to look at it in that time we're talking about abortion yeah we're talking about the uh demasculation of the male figure uh you're educating the woman and obviously walter wanted to create his own um own business He's like, mom, let me open a liquor store. You know, and she's like, nah, we want to invest in your sister's education. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward, we see the same thing. It's like, go get an education. Don't start a business. And then we're going to take, you know, the, the, the abortion thing, which I mean, I'll, I'll pass on that. And then finally, it's that, oh, yeah, we want to integrate. We want to go over to this this area where nobody wants us. <laughs> and this. This helped with that casting of that spell of integration will solve all our problems which of course it's it's exactly the opposite yeah we, we, and let me let, let me can i say something one thing right yeah. quick when i say integration i'm talking about forced yeah state sanctioned integration i want to be clear equality and, and equity <laughs> equality quotas uh, equity quotas it's, it's the same thing correct yes right oh we're gonna bust you over here we need to if people want to be together, they're going to be together because we saw that from the Rothstein clips yeah. uh, that people that had to work together, they naturally live closer to each other because they had to live closer to their job. Yeah, but this is really uh, and they built the community that way. It's very important for for the times we live in right now because no one is is looking at the record of 
integration, uh, forced togetherness, let's just call it that way. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what Black Lives Matter and uh, Inc. and the wokeness uh, is is calling for is uh, we need a quota. We need to have uh, more black people. We have to have so many brown people, so many X, X, Y, and Z in the organization, in the school, in the uh, in the neighborhood. And the thing is, I'm not even anti uh, affirmative action. I think that the way it's done is crazy because one, that was really supposed to be a tangible for black people, mm, uh, yeah. so-called black people, to make up for the the, the ills of what happened pre- previous to that. But then it was hijacked. Yeah, it's it was like, anyone who's a minority. Coming in. Yeah, I'm a minority. Right. Oh, okay, you get affirmative action. Right. And then two, the problem what I find with it is you shouldn't lower the standards for certain not. groups yeah. no 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 it should be <clears throat> if you want to do it off population this group is 13 percent of the population if you have 13 percent that meet the criteria that the other you know uh was that 80 83 uh 87 has to meet <clears throat> then fine you should leave those spots open because if you just do it by the sheer mathematics there should be 13 percent of their representation in that you know exactly. people qualify right. to represent them now I don't I don't I don't I am adamant about lowering I mean being against um, lowering the standards. It's like oh you're black well you only need a twelve hundred SAT. What is that? I mean really, the most pervasive form of racism is that, that right exists there? Today it's right there is the lower expectations. Mm-hmm. Is the lower expectation that is a huge problem? It's the literal. Now, like it's I the said, literal definition of racism because it shows that you think lower <laughs> of that person by race, and and it causes anxiety for people that actually earn their earn their way into their position. Me being one of them, because now I had to prove myself that I did, I belong here. You would think it would be the opposite, but no. It's like when you walk into a room in these spaces. Um, and the first thing people might think is, oh, oh, he's he's a token. You know, he oh, right. I know why he's here. And no, I earned my way everywhere I went. Uh, and it's very counterproductive when you have those lower stand. And we'll do a show on that. But, uh, <laughs> but I just want to show you that how this shaped the minds of black people. Like, oh, yeah, if we could just move away from our own. <laughs> right. Everything will be groovy. Society, yeah, it'll be great. Not, not so much, but let's wrap up with the second part of the plot summary. Mrs. Johnson, the neighbor, stops by excited for the younger's move, but also scared of the violence they'll likely face from Chicago's white folks. Walter stops going to work, and he drinks. When Mama sees his deterioration, she gives him control over the remainder of the money. She tells him to put some aside for Benita's education and to decide himself what to do with the rest. We see an immediate change in Walter, and Ruth decides to keep her baby. While the youngers excitedly pack, Carl Lindner visits a white representative of the Clybourne Park Welcoming Committee. In the falling action, an uncomfortable but polite Lindner says he wants to start a dialogue. But it's soon clear the neighborhood residents want to buy back the house to prevent integration. Walter, Ruth, and Benita angrily reject the offer and ask Lindner to leave. Soon after, Walter's fellow investor Bobo reports that Willie Harris has skipped town with their investment money, Walter's as well as Benita's share. Enraged, Mama begins to beat Walter. 
the family, now in need of cash, considers staying in the apartment. An upbeat, hopeful Asagai debates the possibility of progress with Benita. Asagai asks her to move with him to Africa, to work with him to help improve the lives of his people. At his lowest, Walter calls Carl Lindner to accept the buyout. Benita's ready to disown her brother. But Mama insists Walter needs their love now more than ever. In the resolution, Walter instead tells Lindner they plan to move into the house after all. As movers load the truck, Benita says she's thinking about going to Africa. Mama tells Ruth that Walter's finally come into his manhood. With hope, as well as dark uncertainty about integration, the play closes with the youngers vacating their apartment and going to their new house. And so this episode 14 is a good one, by the way, because this was a clip thrown, thrown back to that. It's a good episode to listen to. They're all great, but it, I just remember how much I enjoyed that one. But this just reaffirms, even back then in the 1950s, the black man was the bottom of the bottom. You have who's supposed to be the patriarch of the family. <laughs> he's treated like a, a child. Yeah. Like he said, even his mama beat him. It's like, what? Like, And, you know, he couldn't do anything right. And his sister was going to be the savior of the family. But this 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 play was written by a huge feminist. Um, but I'm not gonna go there. But I'm just saying that these are the arts and when you start to see how Black Lives Matter Inc. leadership was picked, it was oh yeah, these are the type type of women we want to lead. Yeah. These are the type of women we want out front. It's the same thing who wrote this who wrote this play. Yeah, these are the kind of ideas we want to push going into the nineteen sixties. Um I mean, moving on, we have uh, Dr. Amos Wilson. Uh, He's very popular. He was very popular on the black speaking circuit. The one I mentioned before that happened in bookstores and and things of this nature and and, and an author. And he's going to talk to his. The title of this is Assimilation and Assimilation and Multiculturalism. But what he's going to talk about is the power of a fantasy. When the individual responds emotionally and vigorously to ideas and to concepts and values and ideology, which, if pursued, places the individual in danger, places their very survival in question, then you know that you're dealing with an individual who has been taken over and possessed by a family. And therefore, you have to look at people and their ideologies and look at what place their ideology puts and judge their ideology against the reality of their circumstances. This is the kind of thing we deal with the psychologists every day. With people who come in filled with fantasies and beliefs, attached tenaciously to ideologies and hopes, and yet those fantasies, beliefs, ideologies, and hopes are depressing them, destroying their families, making it impossible for them to realize themselves and to achieve what their potentialities would allow them to achieve were they not caught up in curious games. Yeah, true words. So what he said was, and it clips a little bit his words off because I think this was taken off of VHS. And I want to say one thing. This is why a platform like YouTube is so valuable 
because it allowed people to upload these videos that were taken back in the 1980s, early 80s, mid 80s, and, you know, be recorded in history. If it wasn't for that, it would be probably on somebody's VH tape, VHS tape stashed away. So I want to say that, but yeah. that's why it was a little, that's why it was a little choppy. I just want to explain the clip quality. But what he was saying was these people that are possessed, his words, not mine, possessed by these fantasies is very unhealthy. And that's what you, you alluded to earlier that that's the problem going on today. People yeah. was like, oh, you know, we need to, you know, we have 4.3 black people. We need to have 4.3 black this or that and that. And go. it's like, no, that's not how it works. That's not reality. And when you try to hit them with reality, or logic, it's like I don't know. Something it's it very jarring. Their, their it's very possessed. jarring. It's they're, it's, they're, yeah, it's because it's it's embedded deep in the psyche, and I think we come back to the social dilemma. Here's an example. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you. This is it's just my personal example. So um, I've been looking at uh, coronavirus from day one. I've looked at all the numbers. I've made my conclusions, and you can listen to me on the No Agenda, and you know that I'm really not all that worried about it. Certainly not now. Uh, so we have a big meetup in Vegas tomorrow, and there's going to be 75, 80 people there. And lo and behold, through my mind goes, there's still a thought going, oh, crap. Will this be a super spreader event? Even though I know the true numbers and the likelihood, et cetera, because I've been inundated with stuff from the media. So yeah, it's, it's toxic. It's very, um, it's uh, spells as you would say. <laughs> That's exactly, I mean, cause what spells does is it's magic in one sense and, and magic in another sense. Well, magic in the, in the, um, illusion sense, we know that there's not a rabbit in that hat. <laughs> we know this. <laughs> yes, you, true. <laughs> but when you see it done, it's like, wow. Like, how do you pull that rabbit out that? Not where did he get that rabbit from? Our brain doesn't go there. Uh-uh. I mean, for most people. It's just like, wow, they caught up in the wow factor. And that's what you're saying. That these little things, and even myself. Um, that's why I go on and off social media. I, I go check in, see what's going on, and I come off of it. Uh, because it has a sticking effect their their tools are so powerful yeah their narrative is so well uh woven that i go back to what the lady said now this is a newscaster she understands how the media works and she just regurgitates verbatim what the guy had just came on and said oh 100 years we would we made progress 100 years earlier and she just verbatim regurgitates it back to him yeah, if if I can if I can if I can interject, I have no belief whatsoever that uh, the news lady knows how hypnotizing the message is or news is. I, they're, they're, when I was at MTV, I wasn't thinking about that at all, and we just deceived all the time for small reasons. You don't know when you're part of the machine, you don't realize it. But is that even more of a spell? It's, because it's you know worse. Not to yes, anything. Yes, that's no, what it's worse. Yep. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So they're they're even either you're complicit or a bigger victim than the people in the, in the general public. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair? Uh, yes, and that, that's why you see because you want to believe. Yes, but that's why you see Cheryl Atkinson like and uh, and and all these these uh, former news readers leaving, starting podcasts because they're disillusioned and they realize that they were part of the problem. 
interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's why what we do, not to pat ourselves on the back, is a public service because we don't come here to solve problems or or we, we are, you know, come with solutions to things of that nature. What we do is say, hey, this I'm speaking for myself. I can't speak for you. Let people understand what both sides are saying and let them decide for themselves. That's all I want to do. I don't want to sway anybody one way or the other. But what you have to do is you have to one side is so good at the narrative or the narrative is so strong that you have to spend more time digging that, you know, the core out. It's like we have to get to the core so people can say, okay, now I understand what that side is saying, understand what that side is saying, and then you use your own brain <laughs> to figure out which side you want to align with. And that's why I'm saying about integration, separate but equal is not even given a chance or a choice. Period. So from my from my perspective, um, of course, the stories and the the narrative that I've heard and I was raised with, uh, I'm I'm very open because of what I've been doing for the past you know, 15 years. I'm very open to uh, other history, alternative histories or histories that are not the same. So for me, as I, I'm coming here, I'm I'm here to listen. If I can, if I can tell you what my experience was or how I how I experienced something, but. You know, I feel like this has been such a super education, and we are <laughs> we are following uh, along with the nudge uh, or the spell of Malcolm X, who said this. Well, probably just before I was even born. First, the white man and the black man have to be able to sit down at the same table. The white man has to feel free to speak his mind without hurting the feelings of that Negro, and the so-called Negro has to feel free to speak his mind without hurting the feelings of the white man. Then they can bring the issues that are under the rug out on top of the table and take an intelligent approach to get the problem solved. That's the only way that they'll ever do it. And that is exactly what it is. And I love playing that every single time because it reminds me <laughs> it's not, it's about not triggering. That's it's not so much about here's what I think here. You know. I need to be able to listen to you and you should not have to worry for a second. Like when I was six years old and we told the story on one of the first shows and my parents had colleagues of theirs coming over and a black family and we were excited. Me and my sister, my sister was very young, but I was excited. Like, Oh, this be cool. And, uh, and you know, they showed up and, you know, suit and tie and wouldn't say anything. And, you know, and we'd both been screwed by our parents. <laughs> we both got some kind of, you know, story and we never connected. Because, uh, you know, you were able to tell me, oh, well, here's what my mom would tell me just before we went in to see those white folks. And here's how you, you don't embarrass me. And, well, and now on the other side of that, let me just chime in right there. Now you understand what the black family was going through. It was like, we don't want to seem like slum people. Yes, of course. And it's the, and it's the stupidity <laughs> of just not being able to communicate and so being worried, which is one of the biggest problems with today's youth, youth with the youth, is triggering. Mm-hmm. Make sure you don't trigger anybody when sometimes you just need to push through it to get down to something so we can talk about stuff. And I'd like to talk about our value for value model where we ask a simple question. When you listen to MoFax with Adam Curry, did you get any value out of it? Whatever that was, we'd like you to put that back in. Now, it could be time, talent, treasure. Uh, obviously, we need to pay bills. There's a lot of work goes into this, certainly from Mo's side. So we do appreciate it when people can uh, can send some value. And it, and it can be $1, it can be $5. 
it does not matter because that's valuable to you. So as long as you feel that you got value of what you sent back, uh, then that's fine with us. And uh, we'd like to thank the people who supported the show for this week. Now, I have a, is this a belated from Miss J that we have at the top here, Mo? Please, please, it's a make good. Please, please. M- you know, make, I felt, yeah. I'm going to say, it's, let me explain something to people. The My anxiety is to miss somebody's note mm. when they've gave, given value. And this, my anxiety came true with this one. She sent a note, and I didn't think to. I searched by the names that were in the um in the um the donation cash app yeah. associate yeah what, what was ever associated with the cash app, and I missed her. Ah. so I was like, ah, I felt really, really bad. So please, I will say this one thing. I'll let you continue. If you don't have a note, please write no note. Yeah, because if not, I'm gonna dig, 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 and it just takes. Uh, absorbent amount of time because I don't ever want to forget anybody again. But if we do, we put you at the very top of the list like we did uh, Miss J. Yes, Miss J. So this goes back to September 20th. She says, please accept my it's $100. Please accept my no- donation for episode 50 and wait a minute. Is this 50? How much it's is $50 and $50? $50 and $50. There we go. Yes. Uh, it goes towards 50 more episodes. I found you from the Star Report. I guess that would make me a Star Mono Row. Star Report, Mo Facts, No Agenda, Rogan. Oh, hey, we're sending the people over to Rogan. This is good. Uh, could you put me on the birthday list? Well, we don't really have a birthday list, but we are happy to uh, celebrate your birthday at any time, which was September 30th. And uh, would definitely like some Mo Karma for me to meet my future husband. Yes, Miss J, we do future husband karma out of the box. You've got Mo Karma. And thank you very much. Wait, wait a minute. It's her birthday, so we know everybody gets on their birthday, don't you? Of course. They always give me a biscuit on my birthday. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing like a butter biscuit. Uh, Now, moving on to our uh, first executive producer of episode number 51. This is from Kyle Dietz, 33333. The magic numbers reign supreme in the morning, Mo and Adam. Been listening since episode one, uh, but have not been paying my podcast support. Please de-deadbeat me. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. I have wondered, uh, Kyle continues, what has brought the so-called black community to where it is today as the mainstream narrative didn't quite make sense. I'd heard pieces here and there, but your uh, weekly Malcolm X, (laughs) in quotes, Malcolm X talks have brought it together (laughs) into a cohesive narrative which makes so much more sense and can unite us instead of divide. Yes. It's so, and it turns out to be really easy as long as you just agree, hey, whatever I say, don't get triggered by it. And, you know, we were old, we, we're old guys, so we wouldn't get triggered by any stuff anyway. But that's what it takes. I humbly request baby making Mo Karma with a goat twist as my smoking hot wife and I attempt to expand our family. Uh, keep doing, I presume this uh, says keep doing the work. Uh, yes. Let me see if there's any more here. Uh, I just lost it here on the spreadsheet. This is Excel. Does yes, says keep me. doing the work. Uh, thank you for your courage, Sir Cal, the fearless Jedi Knight of the Orange Fleet. Ah, okay, perfect. Uh, yes, of course we got some uh, baby-making Mo Karma. <laughs> You've got Mo Karma. With that extra, extra touch of goat. 
can't go wrong with a little bit of goat. Let me just uh, expand my spreadsheet here again. There we go. Uh, onward to Sir Stolkson. The <laughs> let me see what is what is his name here? Stolk Stolkson the. Oh my God! I'm sorry. I seem to have unformatted everything unsuccessfully. <laughs> oh okay. no! Here we it's, go. Uh, Sir the Stokeson, yeah, the, the, okay, you're right. I okay. got it. Sir Stokeson, the Plymouth Pinellas Palandin. Uh, here we go. Mo and Adam wanted to share some personal, and they sent us two hundred fifty dollars. Thank you. We wanted to share some personal experiences I think could be relevant to the show. Always love this. I get this is a bit of war and peace, so if it's too long, please don't feel obligated to read on the show. No, we'll, we'll go through it. I'm about the same age, age as Adam, and I am a white male. I was reared through my formative years in Massachusetts up until junior high. My family then moved to Kentucky, where I finished junior high and went through high school and college. The transition period was when there was an emphasis on American history in my education. In Massachusetts, being a highly academia-oriented state, yes, MIT, all kinds of places, Harvard, um... Curriculum content for that age group was about a year or two ahead of the same group in Kentucky. As a result, I went through the teachings of American history from two perspectives, which turned out to be quite different and quite enlightening. In Massachusetts, I was taught the narrative. I love how people are using the term narrative a lot today. I was taught that. So perfect. I was taught the narrative that we hear in media today, where Lincoln was the savior of the slaves. Interestingly, Interestingly, in Kentucky, I was taught much more of what Mo was sharing in episode 50, which I think is more factually accurate. This may seem somewhat counterintuitive, as you might expect the South to spin the story with contrary but similar bias versus what the North shared. The, at least what I perceive of, less biased view may be partially due to the fact that Kentucky was somewhat of, uh, somewhat of a cusp state in the Civil War period, as opposed to being considered a true Southern state. A perspective that lives on with many who identify slash discuss the southern states, even today, where Kentucky is frequently omitted from the list. Uh, the one thing that stuck with me, he says, I've continued to monitor is how the appropriation of words and symbols to shapes, symbols to shape people's thinking is so manipulative. Yes, politically motivated. It's always been troubling to me, but I think it's important for people to recognize. Now, he goes through a whole bunch of examples which would really take quite a long time, but luckily he gave us uh, room to edit. So I'm going to edit to when he says, uh, this is a long-winded way <laughs> to say thanks for the content you're sharing, Mo and Adam. Much like No Agenda, it confirms the perspectives I've held based on my own experiences aren't crazy as the media would have one believe. And you're so right, and I feel this too. It's opened my eyes to additional contemporary things that align to what I've learned in my youth and over time. It's healthy, and I've asked my children now about Mo's age, Mm, I don't think I could have been your dad, Mo. Yeah, I think uh, I think he's putting me at a much uh, much older bracket, but I I appreciate it. <laughs> Why you? I don't know. Hey, hey, hey. Maybe um, your children's. Uh, maybe most children are your children's age. Anyway, I've I've asked my children to listen to a couple of specific episodes in hopes that it will, at minimum, open their eyes wider and ideally help them understand more of the foundation that leads to me having many of my perspectives. This all being in stark contrast to what they're being taught in academia in mass holes. Yes, I've relocated back north for the family reasons over time. <laughs> mass holes. <laughs> mass holes, I like that. Thank you very much to you both. Keep up the great work. Please de-debt me. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. And his show lineage is MTV, PC Magazine, Daily Source Code, Twit, Cranky Geeks, No Agenda, Rogan, MoFax. And good luck, he says, with that acronym. I'm not even going to try. And he says... Uh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> it's a, Did you just do... 
just do that on the fly. What? Show lineage. No, he says it right here in his note. I like that. It's good, isn't I it? Didn't, I didn't, yeah. Yeah, it's the show. What's your show lineage? <laughs> Show. Yeah, you, continue. I'm if, sorry about that. If you got the right show lineage, you you might qualify for reparations down the line. So this is very good for anything that might have bothered you. MTV PC Mag gotcha. And he adds a note. By the way, Mo, love your approach to what are you doing about it. I embrace a similar philosophy, starting with the kids, then expand from there as possible. Uh, your show is meaningful and important contribution to that. And we thank you very much, man. That's that's perfect, 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 perfect. Uh, then we go to Stephanie Gullet, uh, $100. Uh, it says, I hope if this note finds you well, along with mine and my husband's $100 donation. We are no agenda listeners turned MoFax listeners. The information provided on this show has been eye-opening and at times mind-blowing. Yeah, I feel just as privileged to be here myself. Thank you for taking the time to break down and openly discuss these complex topics. As a white female, I have longed to better understand racism from the viewpoint of my ADOS brothers and sisters and gain insight as to what it is that they seek from the white community. Your discussion on reparations and racism today have been extremely helpful. Sadly, as someone living in the Deep South, these discussions are not easy to come by or have. Thanks for taking us a step in the right direction. I pray our nation can heal from our wounds and unite once again. I'll take a mo karma for myself, my smoking hot husband, and our four human resources of the Caucasian variety. Keep up the fantastic work and may the Lord bless you and keep you. And thank you very much, uh, Stephanie, and your smoking hot husband. That's highly appreciated. Here comes some mo karma. <laughs> You've got mo karma. And I feel that uh, from what I've understood from a lot of parents uh, of all colors and races, is the best way is to take your kids on a long drive that they're excited to go someplace and then lock them in the car and play a couple episodes. It seems to work really well. Uh, $100 from Ybro Inc. Uh, No note that we can see. Uh, Also $100 from Adam Choi, who says Adam and Mo. Uh, Rona Mo cult member, came from Rogan No Agenda Mo Facts, here to pay tribute not long after listening to the Kanye episode. I came across some discussion on the censorship and suppression of Kanye's recent music video for his song, Wash Us in the Blood. While the music video is highly controversial and teeming with provocative footage and symbolism, there seems to be a concerted effort to suppress the video by YouTube. The video has been age-restricted, while Cardi B's WAP is not. (laughs) The view count has been frozen at about 9 million views for two weeks now, and many people who watch a lot of videos about Kanye and Travis Scott couldn't find this video in their recommendations or sidebar. They had to manually search for it. Well, I'd love to hear an analysis of all the symbolism and references in the song. I wanted to first bring up the controversy surrounding the video. I rewatched that interview where Kanye goes on a Kanye goes on a rant about woke culture, and he says, "I've been killed so many times, and this seems like yet another attempt." Have either of you heard about the issue? Also, can I get a D deadbeat and a Pelosi a Trump Pelosi Jobs co- uh, combo? You are crossing over on that, but I think we can do that. Let me see. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. Do you want to, uh, while I find the Pelosi Trump jobs karma? Sure. Uh, I'm going to say it's so suppressed, I haven't even heard this video. Really? That's, yeah, really. That's why I'm like, what What video? Uh, Yeah, I'm going to have to go look at that. Because, I mean, I have a lot of Kanye in my playlist, and it should be recommended, you would think. I mean, especially when... Uh, that that should be something that was to be suggested to me. I think I'm at the right age level. I mean, appropriate yeah. age level and interest. So, 
Yeah, they're definitely suppressing this. But that's also that's also weird because you're you're a Kanye aficionado. You follow him, and so <laughs> wow. Well, I I know I want a full report next time. I want to. I, I haven't seen. Hey, the video. I'm gonna have to go look it up. So <laughs> the show is over. I'm gonna have to go see what's going on here. All right, it might be another rabbit hole. Here you go, Adam Choi. Jobs, 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 and jobs. Let's vote for jobs. <laughs> there you go. And thank you very much for supporting the show. And Neiman, $100 as well. Uh, no notes. Storm Williams, uh, $100. Thank you, Adam and Mo. You are really helping people. Uh, hey, you People got to do the work. You got to propagate the formula. And that is, I yeah, that is our last executive producer for episode number 51. Now we go to our associate executive producers at uh, $52. We have DH Slam of the God. Who says I made a clerical error last episode and did forty nine dollar club member donation to episode fifty because my pod player didn't show episode fifty when I returned the value. I thought about giving one dollar to compensate, but didn't want to burden the team of accountants in the back office. So here's an extra dollar for show fifty one, uh, the show fifty one uh, fifty one club number club member to make up for my error. Uh, don't worry, it will make you whole on the back end. Okay, we have no problem with you, DH Slam of the God. We got it. You're in. You are an episode number member for sure. And thanks right. also to Joe Baudry, uh, $51.80. Mo and Adam, thank you for helping me do the work beyond my history learnings. Well, that's beyond your history. It's pretty much all the work. Episode 50 was a real eye-opener. Uh, about what I had missed out in my education. I appreciate the lessons. I've already hit a friend in the mouth and would appreciate Mo Karma and a D-dead beating. Love and light, says Joe. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. <laughs> You've got Mo Karma. $51 from Please Call Me Jake. I will call you Jake. All the episodes have been informative and educational, he writes. But I have had to go to Home Depot to buy extra tarps for these last few. <laughs> uh, keep it up, and I'm going to find out how to buy stock in the Blue Tarp Company. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. Very, very entertaining. Uh, then we go to Joshua Jackson, and Joshua Jackson, $51, so another episode club membership. Gentlemen. Excellent show. Can I get a D deadbeat, please? Yes. Of course you can. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. Uh, second question was episode 50, the se- season one finale or the season two premiere? Well, the answer to that is yes. Episode 50 at two hours, 30 minutes Perfect. and 30 seconds. Mo brings up the welfare state and no man in the house. Uh, been around since the 40s, 50s and 60s. And no one is asking how do we get men back in the house? Mo, you suggested the possibility that the powers that be don't want a man in the home as uh, it feeds to the prison industrial complex. I'd like to suggest an alternative possibility. In 2020, men and women and women and men can, can give birth to children. Biological men and young women are participating in women's sports and so on. Any objection to any of these views is hate speech. Is it now transphobic, transphobic to, uh, or to suggest that a child needs a man in the home or they need a father in their life? Well, I wouldn't say it's transphobic, but for sure it's being pushed against hard. Uh, no one could have known it in the 40s when they pushed men out of the home that 80 years later we'd be redefining what it means to be a man, woman, father. 
have the less views on gender and trans issues painted themselves into a corner where they cannot advocate for a man in the home lest they be labeled transphobic or sexist? Josh Jackson. I'll, I'll take that, Josh. I'll answer that. No, uh, I don't think that's the problem at all. They literally do not want men in the homes to this day. And they don't want men in the movement and they don't want men um, anywhere but apparently uh, shutting up or as a, as a martyr symbol. How'd I do, Mo? <laughs> Thank you. Feel feel much better now. Uh, and and there is D H Slamma, the God with fifty one dollars. That's his show club donation. So he's all over the place. We love you. Thank you for your support, D H Slamma, the God. Fifty one dollars from Shane McLaughlin and McLaughlin. Hey, Mo and Adam, a new listener to the show. Discovered it in September, around the time I found No Agenda. By the time you read this, I should be freshly deduced. This will be my first da- donation of many. So please, D deadbeat me. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. I really appreciate all the work you guys do. As a white male from rural western Pennsylvania, I can only learn to understand. The quote, seek to understand, then to be understood, that Mo said a couple episodes back has really stuck with me. Thank you guys again for everything you do and will continue to do. Can I get some Mo Karma, please? Keep doing the work and stay safe out there. Shane McLaughlin from the rural outskirts of Pennsylvania. Yes, of course, we got some Mo Karma for you. You've got and, and Mo Karma. Yes, Mo. And that is not my quote. That is uh, Covey from Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which people should definitely try to incorporate in their that's lives. Very, and that's a good read, too. You can get software for it and everything. It's fantastic. Right. $51, another club member for um, John Taylor, says, making me feel it's time for reparations. And he's got some emojis there that didn't translate to, <laughs> to the spreadsheet, but I'm sure they were good. Kurt Collins, 5150, uh, uh, 50, I'm sorry. Uh, peace and love from Kurt and Jen. Congratulations on season one success. We can't tell you how much your conversation means to us. Dissecting the issues and uncovering the truth. Keep it rolling. Can we get any and all Jesse Lee Peterson ISOs? Legend. Well, yes, we can. Amazing. Celebration. <laughs> Come on. Come on. <laughs> it's a celebration. Well worth the price of admission. Celebration. <laughs> Uh, there you go. Uh, hopefully that did it for you. Eric England, $50 and 45 cents. Uh, hi, Mo and Adam. A l- just a little episode donation for episode 50 plus 45 for health for 45 Savage. Throw this into the Give Blacks Guns Fund. I started the show at number 32, but did the work and went back to the start and caught all the episodes. This is truly the Lord's work you're doing here. Wish it was mandatory listening in schools. <clears throat> Keep up the outstanding efforts. The country, no, really the world needs you to keep this going thank you both i'm off to find some butter biscuits right now oh does that mean he wants a butter biscuit because we could give him a I butter, believe so. we could give him a butter biscuit they always give me a biscuit on my birthday and uh, if you're homeschooling or if you know someone who is homeschooling why don't you recommend uh, mofax with adam curry uh the parents can easily review it first before they let their kids listen but um a lot of them who a lot of homeschoolers are uh sharing this with their children <laughs> whoever thought <laughs> for myself you know like i'm a vj and now this hmm. uh <coughs> frankie t fifty dollars 
uh, associate executive producership for Frankie. Happy half century, Mo and Adam. Really happy every time the episode queues up. Thank you for your courage, both. Uh, not much mouth left, Adam. You guys hit me from all sides. All the best, uh, Frankie T. Theodora Dorinda Onyena. Onyena, Onyena, $50 with no note, but we thank you. Elvis, Chef Elvis Rosenberg, $50. He wants a cancel cannon. <laughs> Always happy to do it. <laughs> Stephen S., also $50. Mo and Adam, you make quite a pair. Great thing you are doing. I've listened to Adam since the daily source code. That goes back. I believe I donated to No Agenda once in the past, but it's been a long time, so I guess I'm a douchebag. I got douchebag status after so long. I started listening to Mo Facts at episode number one. I've just finished episode 48, so I'm about caught up. What you're doing must be pretty magical because you got this cheapskate to send you a $50 donation. Steve S. from Northport, Florida. Mo Karma to the both of you, and we'll send it right back at you, Steve. Thank you so much. You've got Mo Karma. Another $50 here from Susan, who says she looks forward to each episode. Thank you guys so much. Adrian Zaba, $50. Keep at it, boys. Love the Germinator. Logan Went, $32.17. I wonder if there's a message in there that we should be understanding. Uh, It says, keep spreading the good word. Logan from West Virginia. Thank you, Logan. Bradley Taylor, $25. Jason Kemp, $20.00. And says, mind blown once again with episode 50. Keep up the good work and thank you for your courage and for opening our eyes here. Curtis Thomas came in twice with 1987 and he says, he, hi, professors Moa and Adam. Your show has become very important to me on a personal level. I find you're telling my family history in a sense, at least my dad's side. I'm ADOS only on one half, but have always rooted for the underdog, so to speak. One comment I will make. From what I can tell, you guys have tried to be clean language-wise. I so appreciate that because I really want to just play these episodes for my kids. I would humbly ask you to try even harder to keep the language clean in order to open this content up to a wider and younger audience. Blessings to both of you and the entire MoFax community. I'm a little dry right now financially, but you guys have a lot more coming from me. Love from Thomas fam- from the Thomas family in Missouri. You are absolutely right, Curtis. I cannot be sitting here and saying you need to use it for homeschooling when I'm the one that is cussing the most. I will do the work even better. I apologize for that, and I think I said it here in this episode, too. So apologies. I'll get better. And his second donation for the same amount, he says, here's to schooling and ruling. Much love. Uh, May you both experience more abundance and grace. We are blessed Ever since we started doing this show, the blessings have just been fantastic. Aaron Brown, $15, says thanks for a great podcast. Been listening since I saw Adam on Joe Rogan. Over the pandemic, I've gone back and listened to all the past episodes. Keep up the great work. And can I get a Mo Karma? Of course you can. (laughs) You've got Mo Karma. $11 from Matthew Liberatore. He says, thanks for the education. Robert Case, $10. I value guys more than this, of course. I've learned so much. Now, it's whatever. Again, the value is whatever you've got. Whatever. This is clearly $10 is valuable to you. That's all we care about. That's what, just put the value that you felt for this show or whatever you learned, whatever, whatever you got out of it. Robert O'Donnell. Yeah, exactly. $10, fantastic show. Always blowing my mind. Appreciate you doing the work. Uh, Kevin Salk, $5. Uh, 
Uh, Airbnb King on Insta told me to send this to you. He said, no shout out, whatever that means. Oh, this is a pass through. I like that. <laughs> this is like a, oh, that's a, that's a way to do it. And Terry Keller, I think has come in before with 411. Uh, all, all this time. Every, every single with show. the same number, 411. Yeah, well, 411. Yeah, we're, we're, we're giving, we're giving the 411. And that concludes our, uh, all of our supporters for episode number 51 of MoFax. Uh, with Adam Curry, and th- thank you so much. It's beautiful to see uh, to see everyone supporting the show and uh, supporting the work and doing the work themselves. And really, when you send those notes uh, about how it's impacted you or your family or your life, it, it, that's I would say that's what Mo and I talk about the most uh, offline. Yep, it's like, man, can you believe this? <laughs> it's, something's actually. <laughs> it's we're making some kind of difference. It's uh, it's starting. Not- it's starting. And not only them, but they want their kids to hear us, yeah. which that is. That's mind blowing to me. That, I'm blown away about that. And I, I'll say this. If somebody wants to do some value and make some uh, clean edits of our show that will, you know, we can't go back in the time machine and correct what we're saying, anything that may be out there, but maybe somebody can do a value of, of that. Of, or or uh, even better. Value if- in that way. How about this? If you if you catch it, if you catch one that uh, like in this episode, I don't know where it was. Write down the the, mm-hmm. the time code, send it to me, and I'll I'll do a re edit, and I can re edit all of these and put them back up. Uh, I, I wouldn't right. mind. Either I, way, yeah, yeah. I, uh, that's important to me because uh, well, exactly of what you said. This is it. We need this to be able to be taught in school, and uh, even though I find a lot of the things that you might hear in clips a lot more offensive. <laughs> than, than the cuss words <laughs> i appreciate it and i understand it and I, and I will do much better with that and with that thank you uh to everyone who supported this show episode episode number 51 to learn more uh go to mofax m-o-e-f-a-c-t-z.com <laughs> we also have an archive page now with a, a cute little player there so you can uh, ram through the episodes if you're looking for something specific uh that's at archive.mofax.com and to go directly to our donation page uh, where you can hit us with uh, Cash App and uh, PayPal. That is uh, mofundme.com, M-O-E-F-U-N-D-M-E.com. And thank you all again, once again, for uh, supporting us here. MoFax with Adam Curry. So I know I've harped a lot about on the sentiment that people want it separate but equal, or there's a good portion of people that want it separate but equal. Now I need to put up or shut up. So I'm ready to put up. All right. Uh, I have these clips from a couple of gentlemen and then a couple of leaders followed, you're saying following the, the gentleman speaking. And one of them is this, the first gentleman is uh, a teacher from Farmville, Virginia. And he's going to speak about his specific uh, experiences uh, with, uh, you know, board of education. Uh, and he's actually from uh, Farmville, Virginia, where, you know, where Brown versus board of education had a big, um, Rolling. So I guess we can get into uh, separate but equal one. Uh, when I first uh, heard about integration and heard that it may possibly one day be the you know the way things would go, I had very mixed feelings about it. I was no more anxious to mingle with white people than I'm sure many of them were anxious to mingle with me. I felt the same reservations, the same um, prejudices, I guess I may may as well say, that uh, any of them felt, you know. um, So I was not at all thrilled over the prospect. But um, 
As time went on, I began to realize that possibly this was, after all, the only way that the terrible injustices could be somewhat alleviated. Um, and so more and more I began to favor the idea of integration. But I think many black people felt just as I did. They really didn't want any parts of white people. They would have preferred if it were. You know, I've often thought if separate but equal had been a reality, you'd never had a, an integration struggle. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? And he's an educator. <laughs> yeah, that, it's just isn't it interesting how if you just let people, you know, wh- where do uh, black and and white men come together? Um, sports, hmm. sports at a yeah. bar, you know, where you're hanging out. The minute you force it, it's like pff, why? Whereas that's where friendships are made. The friendships are made in the in the in the casual sense. At least that's my experience. And and. When you let down your, you have everybody has reservations, and the reservations really come from the the media and what you think you know about somebody. How can you know about somebody if you don't know a person? Exactly. <laughs> you know, of course you uh, can. So it's self feeding, and as he said, he had prejudices himself. And the reason why this is such a big deal to me, these are things I've heard older people say is like. We had, a, and it's not about not being around other people. We, you you have to understand when they shipped my dad off to his school, the school that he left from ended. Yeah, oh yeah, closed down. Yeah, that, that's so his children didn't get a chance to go to his alma mater. You know, his children didn't get to you know go through the play for high school football. Who he played high school football for? These things have real life impacts. And then you just jam people together, which just jamming people together in in any sense of the you know saying any you know sense of the process is negative because you're forcing people to be together. Yeah. And I want to say this: this is the portion where we might get labeled as segregationists or blah blah blah, but we don't care nope. um, because what we're trying to do is foster. How can we be segregationists when we're doing an integrated podcast? I mean, come on, people, put your head. <laughs> but we came together because we wanted to talk to each other. Yeah. It's like, you know what? You have an interesting perspective. I have an interesting perspective. Let's have a conversation about it. And guess what? People want to hear it. We didn't say, oh, this is coming this season. You know, the, the hottest <laughs> <new integrated laughs> black versus white. What will he say? What will he say? It's cron pro contra. What? Yeah, exactly. It's coffee and cream. You know, Ooh, kind of Emily and Ivory, <laughs> Mac and Jacka, here at you. And no, it's not that it's, we actually talk more about what we have in common than the things that divide us. And you fill in a lot of gaps for me, and I, hopefully, I fill in a lot of gaps for you. And what is the on, what is the wow, number one thing? The number one thing that I think always connects us is our families and our kids. We don't talk about them exactly. on the air, but you know, <laughs> believe me, we're like for the stupid kids, man. Can you believe this kid? <laughs> That's the kind of stuff we talk and, about. And the fear of where we see this thing headed. Yeah, I mean, you sure. hit on a key point there. I got to give you one of those because you hit on a key point. What is the world going to be that our kids inherit if we keep on this same uh, cycle that we're headed? Where where does this end? I'm. Are, are you going to erase me? Are you going to erase Adam? Yeah. I mean, like, or or 
are we going to be so are my kids going to be so racially charged up and you're so racially charged up that they're anxious around each other and can't have a conversation no we need to tear we're trying to tear down these things that put up to divide us integration wasn't really to bring us together it was no. really to to erase one or the other or both i mean if you how sinister you want to get to it but yeah um and we're hearing it for straight straight from these people's mouths and let me not stand in the way and i will say one thing doesn't this guy sound like red fox <laughs> yes it does very much very much like red fox that's good <laughs> i just wanted that's to say good. that but um let's Lamont, get back into Lamont, um, Lamont. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into clip number two. Black people would have been, I think, would have been very, very satisfied to maintain, but just make sure it's equal. And that's where the problem lay. Uh, our, our Moton High School, uh, a joke man with uh, a couple of tar paper shacks, which were unsightly. And uh, compared to the uh, Farmville High School, you know, this, this is the idea of separate but equal. Um, uh, books so so... Uh, torn apart. In one case, a friend of mine who's supposed to teach chemistry, man, the only books he could get, uh, he had shreds and particles and pieces of books. And by linking up in his classroom, he passed out what he had. By linking up together, the kids were then able to to get together enough material to... These books have been discarded by the white high school some years before and passed on to the black school. Now, this points out the, the weakness and the corruption of the principal, who was black. This teacher, friend of mine, not knowing the chain of commands, his brand new teacher, uh, went to the superintendent and said, look what, look what I've got to work. I can't work with it. How can I teach chemistry with this junk? And immediately got a brand new um, set of books for his classroom. Now, the point of this is this. That principal could also have done that, but it was better for the principal to report a surplus at the end of That happened. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> That's like... Isn't that amazing? Yeah. No, it's lame. It's so typical. No, but he was so indoctrinated with fear yeah. that he wouldn't even go ask for the resources that he needed so he would seem like a good principal and that he was doing his job. So what was your job? <laughs> I mean, we really have to ask these questions. And like I said, I don't want to make this a gender, I mean, I'm skipping out gender, but a generational war. But in certain circumstances, we have to ask, is this the best deal you could have gotten? Yeah. I mean, like, think about this. There's books. And, and I'll say this. The problem with this is if the so-called white people are earmarking money aside and having books available and nobody's come picking them up, what does that look like to them? Yeah, it's like, you, like, don't, you don't want our books. students don't care. Yeah. So then it feeds into the narrative that, oh, yeah, they, they don't want to do better. And then here this guy, all he's got to do is ask for books and he can get them. But he's, I'll let our kids just scraps. I mean, scraps. My, like I said, my dad told me that, I mean, I didn't have to hear it from this gentleman. My dad would say they would have to go to school like a week early and help the teachers to put, like, the, to put the books together. Together. Yeah. Pages missing, go look for, you know, this or that. You know, you know how old books, whole sections come out. They would have to like mend them back together and yet and still the resources were there. So, this is the Boule gatekeepers. This is why I harp so hard on the Boule. They say 
what they think their keepers want to hear. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, sir, boss. You know, yeah, we don't want no books, boss. We're doing fine over here. But it, it, at the at the detriment of the children they're supposed to be representing. But that that mo, that's got to be trauma, historical trauma that people have grown up with to 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 think that way. I wouldn't even say historical trauma because when we did the the corona episode, remember the higher ups? Yeah. They were saying, Why are you putting them on a ventilator? It's because that's what the higher ups said. I mean, yeah. you know, why why are you doing this? Because what the higher it's not I, I, I'm we're not saying that's not part of it. Right. But just to keep status quo a hierarchical system. A lot system, of people yeah. go along. Yeah. yeah, they just go along. Well, what I don't I don't want to make any waves. I don't want to, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's no ventilator to killing people, but <laughs> that's what the Germans said uh, in, in the in the late thirties. We you know, we didn't know. We were just following orders. <clears throat> and then you see where it. it can head. Yeah. And you it. can see where it heads that sometimes you have to question these things. Sometimes you have to question what's the motive here. Yeah. Why why don't you want to go get books? <clears throat> but let's la- let's wrap up with the last um uh clip from this gentleman from Farmville. I could cite you know instance in Farmville of the same kind of thinking. It's better to report a surplus at the end of the year, thus protecting myself, make myself the fair head boy downtown, than to go down and ask for materials that are absolutely desperately needed by the children. Just to pass and look at the physical plants would have told you what a fallacy, what a what a, a joke, what a hoax separate but equal was. There's no way in the world that any reasonable person could compare Moton High School, as I said, a, a small brick building, maybe four, maybe five classrooms, supplemented by two tar paper shacks, which were ugly and unsightly. There's no way in the world you could have compared that with um, Farmville High School that, uh, look, at at Moton, the the, uh, the the outlying buildings were heated by wood stoves. Now, one of the teachers, in addition to teaching classes, in addition to driving the school bus, had the additional responsibility of keeping the fires going in, in these buildings. Um, at the White High School, they had a janitor. You know, the, I mean, the disparity was, uh, you know, just ridiculous. It was absolutely no, no separate but equal. It was separate, all right, and very unequal. I, I foresaw, I, I thought I saw that it might come to bloodshed, and I wondered if it were worth it for any single person to die for something like that. As I said, my thing had always been separate but equal, but truly uh, equal in a meaningful sense. And, I, and I'll comment on this, <laughs> that, you know, we laugh about the, the platinum deal, um, mm-hmm. but I do like uh, President Trump's idea of school choice where the parent will be able to determine where the money goes to which school. And I, I presume you could do the homeschooling, whatever it is you want to do. The parent will decide, not the municipality, not the local school district. And it also really puts the school system on notice. I really like that. And I, I, I'm sure it has to go through Congress. You know, he could do an executive order, but you know, that has to go into law. I don't see a lot of Democrats jumping up and down about it, actually, now I think about it. But I really like well, that well, idea. How you gonna indoctrinate the children? I mean, that's that's counterproductive to the indoctrination. It's like, <laughs> hey, we gotta get them, through, we gotta get them through this narrative uh, over here. Um, yeah. And I, I missed the point of uh, pointing this out, but early in the show, the narrative is you were a slave. Honest A freed you. 
Dr. King got you your civil rights. Right. That's it. That's all they ever want to teach you. And stop and there. And stop there. And stop there. Yeah. That's all you need to know. You got enough information now. <laughs> because everything after that is, oh, we're still striving for integration. We're still striving for integrate. This is that's why I'm not against the idea of integration. I'm I I'm against the point of it being the solution to our problem, and only we can solve our problem. No matter amount, you can have the platinum plan, you can have the rhodium plan, you can have the ice stop bling bling plan. Yeah. Unless black people become independent and solve problems for themselves and build their own, it won't work. It it won't it will not work because it's just like when you have children until a child goes out and builds his own house and builds his own family and everything else, they could be successful in your house. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like in the career, but there's still going to be something lacking. And that's the point I want to make. Now, do you need a uh, starter money? Every venture capitalist. No, we need our VC. That's what this whole atonement is about is not build the, the corporation or the structure for us, but you do need funding. You do need the proper schools. You, you know, you need to stop the narrative. And I want to say one more thing before we continue on. It's not, I, I was beating up on the principle a little bit, but it continues to this day. Mm-hmm. Parents know themselves right now. I think that last year, well, we didn't have to do school supplies this year, but last year, my kids had to bring 24 glue sticks to school. Mm. Every child in class, what are y'all doing? Eating the glue sticks? <laughs> I mean, what is it for lunch? <laughs> but you no, know, what that is is you bring enough for the parents that won't have it. Mm-hmm. See that because the principal's too scared to go downtown and, and go say, to the, I, "I need, some, I need some more glue sticks." <clears throat> exactly. So what they do is they put the snack burden onto the parents. They put the um, the glue sticks and the paper and the pencils and the hand sanitizers and the, mm-hmm. I'm like, and then they ask for more glue sticks. Halfway through the year. I'm like, hold on. 20 kids times 20, uh, 24 glue sticks. Come on. Mm. That's almost 500. I'm just saying roughly almost 500 glue sticks. <laughs> and <laughs> you need more. But like I'm saying, that's just passing the book. I don't want to be the teacher. I don't want to be the principal to ask for, you know, too much. And, and then you wonder why people don't want to send their kids to these schools. And, but we, we, we will be doing a school choice uh, episode and I don't want to make this a rehash of, you know, a set of the um, Brown versus Board of Education. But what I'm saying is people in general would rather would prefer to be independent. And even if, you know what, I, I, rather than live in somebody else's mansion, I'd rather build me a two bedroom home on my own. Yes. And I would like to... Uh... <laughs> I'd like to add that the School Choice Now Act was introduced July, uh, I believe July 22nd by Senator Tim Scott. And uh, since we got a uh, voting season coming up, let me tell you who the co-sponsors are. Uh, mm-hmm. Lamar Alexander, Ted Cruz, John Cornyn, Kelly Loeffler, Marco Rubio, Todd Young, Kevin Kramer, and James Lankford. Those are the uh, those are the sponsors. I believe they're all Republicans. So this is in the Senate. Uh, so far, it's only been introduced. Uh, I don't think it's come to the floor yet. 
Uh, so it's good that the president is pushing that, but you know, there's a lot of help is going to be. It's it's basically just been pushed off to the sideline, I guess, for now until whatever important stuff happens. And there's been a lot of good uh, charter schools formed, especially about black men, yeah. <clears throat> um, and you know, in these underserved communities. So we've we we have the proof, but if you allow them to not go to schools, uh, that affects the teachers uh union which impacts you know very deep pockets i'll just leave it at that. Oh, oh no you know the, te- oh. the teachers union <laughs> basically just financed the the rebuilding of laguardia airport wow you, i you heard you say that i yeah. was like yeah yeah i, I, heard, heard, <laughs> yeah. I was like <laughs> what <laughs> yeah i think we could have done some other and, things but okay that's fine and i'll say this and, and i'm gonna save some of this for the the school choice but Teachers unions don't even protect teachers because they didn't protect my father. No. And I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, so I hear you. I hear it, you. It's not even about the teachers. I mean, like most unions are not about the people they're supposed to be built for. But that was the Southern perspective since he was from Farmville, Virginia. So now we have this other gentleman, Mr. Robert Woodson. He was a CEO and founder of the National Center for ah, Neighborhood Enterprises. Bob Woodson. I like Bob Woodson. He's a cool guy. Okay. So, well, let's listen to clip one. I grew up in South Philadelphia. We didn't realize it was segregated. All we knew is that our neighborhood was all black, and we weren't even that conscious of color because the people who owned the store down the street were black, the tailor, the restaurant owners, the undertaker, everybody in the neighborhood, and it was a very small uh, street working. Everybody worked blue-collar, essentially. Very close-knit neighborhood. Uh, Everyone had over four children. (laughs) We played in the streets together on Saturday morning our parents came out and the hucksters came around and our parents purchased things we had to go buy ice because there were no refrigerators then we had a coal stove so the younger kids were responsible for uh, putting wood and coal into the stove and keeping it going and uh, the level of interest in education was just profound I mean I mean even to this day I don't think I've ever ever had such a positive educational experience that I did in my first six years because um, uh, school was an integral part of the community. We had a black superintendent, a, a black principal, all the teachers were black. Uh, many of them didn't live in the neighborhood either. Contrary to popular belief, they were middle-income people who lived elsewhere. But their hearts and their souls were into those kids. As you heard, it was an integral part. And but when you're amongst your own, and and I'll be honest with you about this, we were lower middle class, but I didn't know it, right? I'm, because when you're around your own uh, social, you know, say economic uh, status, I mean, like with people with the same uh, like socioeconomic status, you don't realize how poor you are. It was sure. only when you go to college, yeah, or you know, and be around real rich people. That you say, oh, you okay, like, yeah. My life sucks. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I'm kidding, but it's like, wow, like, I remember, um, just I mean, as a quick aside, I met this guy um, when I was fresh out of college, and we were working together, and we we're, were roughly the same age, and he was like, yeah, my family owns a house down here, and we have a boat there, and a boat at the beach house. Mm. I'm like, hold on, y'all got two boats? <laughs> I'm like, you don't take the boat with you to eat? No, they left it. 
I mean, my mind couldn't, I mean, I understood like wealth and things of that nature, but actually to meet somebody, but his grandfather was like a state senator or something like that. I mean, just a certain, go ahead. Well, that's interesting because when I was growing up and I'm talking uh, Kensington, Maryland in the uh, late 60s, and I think it was pretty consistent everywhere I've lived. It was all kind of the same, but there was always that one family who had the house on the corner that was bigger. That you know, and it, and there, it was always weird. And you wouldn't actually go talk to them. You wouldn't necessarily play with them. Right? I'm just realizing that. I don't know if it really pertains to what we're talking about. But that's no. We, that's how we had I grew those up. families too. Yeah, we had those families too. But I'm just saying. At least it was some likeness in the wealth level. But sure. when you meet people that are millionaires that are and wealthy. multi-millionaires, yeah. 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 and you were barely like, I mean, it makes you look at yourself and look down on yourself. And this, this is part. This is another damaging effect of sending kids off into uh, such a disparity. And what we call the racial wealth gap. I mean, when you start to see that, it's like, wow, like they they have like real money. I mean, because this is this phenomenon called hood rich. I don't know if you ever heard of hood rich, and I don't even know if you've you we've ever discussed hood rich on this on this on the show. I can imagine but, what it means, yeah. Right. So hood rich is basically if you can pay all your bills and you got some of the things you want and take a few vacations, you're considered rich yeah. amongst your peers. Yeah. And I don't want to make like a hood thing, but that I mean that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But then when you real re, meet real rich people, <laughs> like real, real rich people, it's like wow. And it makes you it has an effect on your self-esteem. It really does, because it's like it's very jarring. Well, and enter <clears throat> one other factor that uh people deal with today, and that's social media. Everyone is trying oh. to have that look. Is you know, if you're sewing a Gucci patch on and photoshopping it so it looks real, you know what you're doing it for. You're doing it for all these same reasons. It's really pathetic and destructive when you think about it. It's called conspicuous consumption, mm. and that's one of their biggest problems that our youth have. Yeah, because uh, if you uh, white, white they, black, yellow, red, all youth. By the way, this is not a color thing at all. Because when they did the rioting, uh, what are the first stores they hit? Gucci, Louis. Exactly. So yeah. this is the real problem that these children are having. And then they see it on social media and the phenomenon like my sweet 16 parties. Yeah. These things start to creep over into society. Yeah. And it creates a, a real problem where if you know who you are and where you're from, and you around people that are your, are your peers and your father's around his peers, it's it's a little bit more healthy for your men- mentality. I'm, I, I'll just leave it there. Yeah. But let's get back to uh, Bob Woodson and strong. Uh, we're strong too. Um, up until 1959, 78% of all black families had a man and a woman in them. That's a fact. Teen pregnancy was uh, was looked down upon. Um, sexual activity among kids, uh, everyone bragged about it. No one did it. <laughs> and uh, 
but if someone became pregnant, if there was an aunt in the South, uh, they would go there. They, so that the, the, the moral standards and ethical standards for people living in those communities was extremely high. It had little to do with your income. Um, many of us were poor without realizing that we were poor. The discipline was in the community. I mean, you didn't speak back to an adult. The thought of, a, of an elderly person being disrespected was, was just unheard of. And teachers were never disrespected. And if you misbehave, uh, you would be spanked by a neighbor. And if yeah. your mother got home or father got home, That's you right. were spanked there. And God forbid a teacher should ever have to send for your parents. And they had to take off work. That was it. And so it, it, it imposed a kind of discipline. And again, it, it was a discipline that had little to do with how much money you made. There was a sense of comfort, a sense of well-being, a sense of oneness between the school and the, uh, and the community. Wow, remember teachers would spank you too back in when I was yeah, a kid. Yeah, teachers I, would spank you. Could you imagine you. that now? Uh-uh, could you imagine? Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> And then the other thing he said was um, that it had a certain comfort. I want to be honest with you, just a little background. I mean, because a lot of people don't know a lot about me, but I lived in an enclave of black people in a small North Carolina town where the only white man we saw on a consistent basis until maybe I went to preschool was the insurance man. <laughs> and he would come around <laughs> you know, and it was like, who's this? Guy? I'm not I'm serious. So, you, I was incubated in this my own culture and then I still went off to preschool elementary school and then that is still you know I came back to the neighborhood and you know I was cousin aunts friends you know and then I moved to Durham and I we lived in a black suburb I mean it was it was like the you know the lower middle class suburb but yeah it was still a suburb there was a lot of working class black people. So you went to school and you dealt with school and then you come home and then you had, you know, interaction with people of your own. And and then I went to a black, historically black college, uh, HBCU. And the first, my first year, actually, I went to a white university and it was so jarring to me. It was so, I mean, I'm serious. It was like, what is this? Um, that I only went to school four days a week and I would be back in my hometown you know on thursday night because it was just it wasn't i had anything against anybody because i mean in high school i had a good set of mixed friends but it was what i was lacking it was you now the cultural things and then when i went to hbcu that that they kind of uh restored it for me but like i said when you throw these people into these quote-unquote uh integrated situations they have a lot of psychological effect on people no kidding i think this this not i don't think people care to understand i mean when i say that the people that's making the decisions it's like oh we, we fixed we fixed racism now on to the next problem <laughs> yeah. it's like no you you made it worse um but i'm sorry for the, the long story but i'm just saying that i think i was the last probably generation that grew up like that to be honest with you where it wasn't like a lot of a lot of you know um a lot of integrated uh living amongst you know amongst your community you're probably right you're probably right because i think white flight stopped being a thing too 
I think that's part of it. Cause I'll be, I'll be honest with you. When we used to move on certain, like the third house we lived in, in Durham, mm-hmm. when we moved there, all the, my dad said, watch all the for sale signs going to come up. Really? And damn it. Seriously. He called it. And that's like, oh my, that was, that's a, my of, that's like, kind of a rude awakening. I I was 13 years old. My dad prepared me for it. I mean, like, he, <laughs> but it was not in a negative way, but like, this just how it goes. And wow. lo and behold, for sale sign for sales. But on the flip side of that, you had a lot, a lot of black people that were looking to live amongst black people. Right. <laughs> so right. it kind of, it, it worked out because it's like, and did you see the neighborhood black, change? The neighborhood changed over time? Just in color. Mm-hmm. I mean, the eco- social economic yeah, status. That was the same, had, yeah. Yeah, we had, a black doctor we had a black uh guy that worked at ibm my dad was mm-hmm. mom was social worker teacher we had some people that worked, you know um that worked uh you know doing you know, like construction those kind of things so it was a nice hodgepodge like i said i, I lived the charm like i'm be honest with you <laughs> i lived the uh charm black life <laughs> to be honest with you and i wouldn't change a thing about it um so that, but that's so, so the term. There goes the neighborhood. It was actually true, completely true. But that was the difference because, as you said, with your when people came to visit um, your house, it was like my dad's like, we got to keep our grass cut, you know, because um, yeah. you didn't want to be that that neighborhood, right? I mean, you didn't want to be that neighborhood. Well, that was the same where so we like, lived. I mean, keep- oh, we had to do the same. Of course, you want to keep your grass cut. You'd be the douchebag on the block. You don't want to be that. No, but he wanted to be the first one to get that. I mean, because he didn't want to feed into the stereotype. Mm. So that's the thing that yeah. you are consciously or even subconsciously. Yeah, it's always not around. wanted to ha- live up to that slum title that we talked about earlier in the show. Right. Because that is a real thing that, like I told you, um, and I know I'm kind of dragging this out, but black people, for instance, when I was growing up, you couldn't go anywhere not iron. <laughs> that that just didn't happen and you're you had to have lotion on you had to be clean had to have your hair combed um well, these uh, were these things that was the, that was exactly the same for me and i can i heard my mom many times say we don't want the neighbors to think dot 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 i don't want anyone to think dot 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 not so that's mm-hmm. that's you know it's uh that's kind of across the board um no but what i'll say now but the, the point i was getting to is and I said that I think I told this story before I tell it again in short form. But now when I go to school events, my kids went to uh, a highly populated Hispanic, high population of Hispanic kids. They would be like we were. They would be pressed down. And <laughs> like you see the other kids coming in, shirt tail hanging out all wrinkly. But they had that same thing. Like we don't want to live up to what people think the stereotype is of us. I think we've got so super comfortable. Hmm. Um, and that's where you hear the, the natural hair argument. Like, right, <laughs> right, know, right, right, yeah. right. So, um, I guess we can just get, go right into um, part three. Last, yeah, this uh, last part of Bob. Many yes. of us who, uh, who exercise leadership in the civil rights movement in the uh, <clears throat> early and mid-60s, integration was never our goal. We never saw integration as a solution to the problems. We were seeking desegregation. And I think confusion on that point has continued to erode the, self, the collective self-confidence of the black community today. 
just a very confusion. You see, I fought against de jure segregation. That is, when someone absolutely forbid me to go into a restaurant or live in a given housing complex, I was just restricted by law. Uh, I remember when I was discharged from the military, uh, coming home in 1958 and standing in, in Florida, uh, only person at a ticket window and have the man stop and wait on a white person. He waited on 10 white people while I was standing there. In the meantime, I almost missed a train and couldn't check my bags. That's what I fought against, the indignity of America's apartheid system. So integration was never uh, uh, a, a, an issue for me or for many others. I, uh, I, I like Bob Woodson, and he left the civil rights movement for all the... for. You know, what he saw was happening. Now, like we were mm-hmm. talking earlier about the guy who sounded like John Brennan from the CIA, uh, which was uh, mm-hmm. Davis. Do you know who Bob Woodson, I'm just now realizing, sounds like? Who? Ben Carson. If you, oh, he if does. you slow him down a little bit, you just slow him down just a tad, he sat, he's got the almost like the lisp, and we just play a little bit. And I think confusion on that point. See? Has continued to erode the self. And this is him younger, too. So, we, I mean, this is 1989. So, it, like, I'm, I'm sure it even sounds more like him now. Yeah. <clears throat> and and I'd only bring that up because you can, you know, you, it's it's the milieu. It's the it's the people he may be hanging out with, which for me is really mm-hmm. good news. I, always, I already like Ben Carson because, you know, if I need someone to separate some Chinese twins, you know, that's the guy. <laughs> and I think, and uh, President Trump likes him and he's running... Uh, uh, housing and urban development. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's doing stuff with Tim Scott, and so I think you know that gives me uh, even greater confidence. I, I like that. I like hearing him that he sounds like Bob Woodson, as shallow as that may and, be on my part. <laughs> no, it ma- it matters because, like you said, you could tell a lot about how people speak by what company they keep. Yeah. So yeah, that that is a very valid point, and I want to file this clip away because he made it so clear what they were fighting against. Yeah. It wasn't integration; it was desegregation. Yeah, and that's it's a huge, huge, huge difference, difference. Huge difference. Yeah, when you sit here and saying, <clears throat> when you need to get your ticket, you know, checked, and it's like next, and you're standing yeah. right here, and he's saying to the white person, next, next, next. Yeah. It's like, don't you see me here as a human? Right. Because uh, there's certain things that you know, over time we could build, but we still have to. You have access to. But I mean, that's the, as you heard over and over again. And these, I mean, these are not run-of-the-mill people. These are people that were, you know, in in the time of saying, "This is what we want," and hopefully, I can uh, calm the generational war between the Black Boomers and the Black Millennials because that is a real thing. Yeah. Because they were like, "How stupid were you to try to you know get out spit on to get coffee in a pie?" And then the other side, like, kid, you know, have no idea. And they're like, look at y'all. You know, we had to go through real segregation. Y'all are whining about safe spaces, basically. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. So, so if you remove that barrier between those two, you can have a conversation interracially that would, you know, provide a um, much needed, you know, transfer of knowledge between the two groups. I think I think but, I think this all the problem came when spanking ended, Mo. That's when the kids. Well, that's when the kids when got, they got out of school. They, they was. They, I mean, a lot of people, and that was a big thing in the black community because I remember hearing that conversation was going like, "Are they going to what take what?" 
take who out of school? Right. So it was like, yeah, so that was it. But yes, definitely spankings. Uh, and then that ventured over, then you can't spank your kids at school, I mean, at home. And then, you know. Oh, no, I'm sure these days, if your kid goes to school, my daddy spanked me. You get a call from uh, Child Protective Services, pretty much. Right. So, yeah, so that's that's the real thing. So now we get into the problematic. Can I get a trigger warning? Do you have to? I have to. I have to get a trigger warning for these next four or five clips we're going to play because it's going to make sure people are ready. Like, you got to brace yourself. <laughs> trigger warning. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. <laughs> Look out, everybody. Trigger warning has been activated. Okay, we're ready. We're ready for the trigger. And we only bring this out when we go heavy. So, it's, I mean, we don't do this every show. Brace for impact. But it's not... <laughs> It's about to get deep. Uh, 32. Is it fair to say as a generality and as a, a succinct way to put it that you believe in segregation of the races? No, segregation is that which is, Mr. Muhammad says that segregation is that which is forced upon inferiors by superiors. Separation is done voluntarily by two equals. You never refer to the Oriental community in which Orientals live exclusively as a segregated community because they live there voluntarily. They, uh, everything there is controlled by them. The economy, the politics, the civic organizations, but the Negro community is referred to as a segregated community because Negroes are forced to live in that community uh, contrary to their will, and they don't control the businesses of their community. They don't control the politics of their community, nor their social life. Wow. Malcolm. <laughs> yeah, we got a two for him. <clears throat> so what he's saying basically is, just going back to the, he's speaking in real time about the projects. And how people were forced into slums by not having any other options. And that's why he was saying it's not uh, separation because we didn't choose it. Which, now I'm going to say this. Elijah Muhammad is going to shape the next three speakers' minds. And he was very big on being self-reliant, build your own, have your own. And you really can't talk about him now for several reasons. uh, But as we do, we take away the positive for people when we leave. You know, we don't subscribe to everybody's whole lexicon of thoughts. We pluck out, you know, things that will work or things that need to be discussed. So he w- he was the mentor to Malcolm X and uh, the next two speakers. But this is the thing. It's like, um, I think this is another part, another another part of the generational issue. Black people now, young black kids now, not kids, but young adults can't fathom not being able to start your own business because now it's a global market. Whatever you want, you can just order it and you can set up a shop on the internet or even if a storefront, right? Yeah. Because we're getting things straight from China or straight from, you know, other, you know, other foreign uh, countries. At this time... You didn't have that luxury. <laughs> if you didn't know somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody, <clears throat> you could easily be shut down. So that's the other generational gap is now. But if I, I if I can, if I can, complete, su- yeah. if I can suggest that is also um, an education problem because you know, well, certainly from my perspective, you know, you hear about segregation. Uh, it pretty much boils down to school, water fountain, and toilet. 
You know, and you, that's it. The other stuff is never discussed. Like, oh, that sucks. And they, and, and and as a kid, I remember thinking, a water fountain. Well, is that weird? Is it, you know, it, it, it was, <laughs> no. I was like, I I never actually the fact that it was taught confronted me. I never thought about it. And then I got weirded out by everyone's mouth on the water fountain. I didn't want to drink water out of the water fountain at all. I was like, man, look how many people are on that. Not color, but just how many people are using it at all. But that's all that it was. Toilet, water fountain, and school. And there was a lot of imagery to reinforce those three things. You never hear about entrepreneurialism. Uh, you know, the success stories were equally as limited uh, to the full scope of what was possible, what people did, and what segregation really was, and what um, what success stories there were of people who broke through that. It's so limited, so limited in what I learned. Yeah. And then the other thing is that before, like I said, if you wanted to start a business, you had to go through so many ropes and, mm-hmm. you know, um, had to know somebody, know somebody, know somebody, uh you need to have the suppliers, but now, see, this is the gift and the curse of a country like China. <laughs> yeah, or globalism. <laughs> globalism. I mean, what I what I mean, yeah, but we know where a lot of these products come from. That opens the door to say, you know what, I don't have to deal within this country anymore. I can go straight there, buy it for one, sell for two. Right. Which really furthest capitalism you think about it totally <clears throat> now because you have it's about competition <clears throat> and a lot of things also is uh, about ideas <clears throat> so it's now look at us we we couldn't do this show 50 years ago even if we want to even if we had the will or maybe 60 years ago we couldn't do put the show together because you had to get on a broadcast or yep. radio i mean you were a pirate radio. I mean, you know about being locked out oh, yeah. of an industry. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I'm just saying. So, imagine, you know, imagine that if you're trying to open a storefront and that kind of thing. And then the other thing, I'll say this finally, and this is a big one, and I know you're you're kind of against them, but credit karma and the understanding of credit itself. When you got your credit report in the 80s and 70s, you didn't know what the hell was going on on it. You know, I was like, what, what, what is this? Well, well, I mean, you yeah. know, I pay my bills. Yeah, well, sadly, credit karma is intended only to enslave everyone, all children of all ages more, by making you behave in certain ways to give you access to more uh, credit. <laughs> it's a very, very, True, very but, evil uh, situation that's going on there. But for a lot of people, this is the first understanding of how your behaviors impact your credit. That's true. That's so true. that's what I'm saying. A lot of this stuff they're building, we could turn around and use against them. If you know how to game the system. And it, I, trust me, I know how to game the credit course, uh, credit sure. score system now. Sure. Not, in a, not in a negative way, but just in, oh, that's what, this turn this dial, turn this knob. Oh, that makes a jump 10 points. Good, nice. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I, I guess where I'm coming from is I would prefer that uh, we teach our children that um, you don't necessarily have to, you know, there's, to me, a credit card or, you know, credit is reverse spending, mm-hmm. re- reverse saving. True. I'm sorry, reverse saving. Like, True. Instead of, I remember saving up stuff. 
you know, saving up because you, there was no real credit credit cards, and you know, kids didn't have credit cards. There was none of that. Um, that's that's why our generation. I mean, I know we you're saying a little gap between ours, but we understand the digital, but we're based in analog thought. Yeah, for sure. And what I mean by that is, you pay your bills on time, you save money, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not saying don't do away with that. That's why it's harmful to children mm-hmm. or, or young adults because they're not based in that reality. Right. It's just it's just a game to them. Now you but just hear you two have, American dads yapping on a podcast. That's what you're hearing now. <laughs> ah, damn kids. No. Yeah, no. I'm, what I'm just saying that is that's why you need fathers in the house yeah. to teach them the principles of, hey, this is the way it is. This is the way it works. Okay. Now, how can you use that as a tool to your benefit? Okay. You know, so not, use the things I taught you and use these things as a tool to your benefit. But I mean, like I said, I, 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 I've gone off on a tangent long enough but now we have a new Malcolm that was actually that last one was from throwback uh, show 20 a throwback clip and I want to expound on that or let Malcolm expound on that a little bit more about integration isn't dignity Dr. King's goals are quite different from yours. He believes in integration, complete well, integration of society. If, if, if integrate, no, well, that's where Dr. King is mixed up. Uh, his goal should be the solution of the problem of the black man in America. Now, not integration. Integration is the method toward obtaining that goal. And what the Negro leader has done is gotten himself wrapped up in the method and has forgotten what the goal is. The goal is the is the is the dignity of the black man in America. He wants respect as a human being. He wants recognition as a human being. Now, if integration will get him that, all right. If segregation will get him that, all right. If separation will get him that, all right. But after he gets integration and he still doesn't have this dignity and this uh, recognition as a human being, then his problem is still not solved. Well, isn't this exactly what Dr. King is looking towards? And that is the day when the Negro will be treated with dignity. Wasn't this, after all, the result of the Montgomery bus No, because uh, I don't think you can, uh, having an opportunity to ride either on the front or the back or in the middle of someone else's bus doesn't dignify you. When you have your own bus, you have dignity. When you have your own school, you have dignity. When you have your own country, you have dignity. When you have something of your own, you have dignity. But whenever you are begging for a chance to participate in that which belongs to someone else or use that which belongs to someone else on an equal basis with the owner, that's not dignity that's ignorance i'm now realizing uh that throughout my life i've heard uh malcolm x's example any any black man who would talk about the black man i always kind of presumed i just means all black people but now i'm kind of learning it actually is specifically about black men yeah (laughs) because we shape the minds of our children. Very unpopular thing to say in today's woke culture, Mo. Very unpopular for you or me to say. And? No, I mean, that's, I mean I'm mean, i not saying that to you. I'm saying that to them. And? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I got it. I got I'm teaching you. my children to have dignity. I'm teaching my children to have your own. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm an employer, but I don't want my children to work for anybody. Right on. You yeah. know, I tell my daughter, I was like, look, you want to start your own business? Actually, I'm talking to a couple of producers. Uh, other show they have the private labeling stuff to get my daughter's uh six was about to be 17 years old get her feet wet into private labeling and starting her own business 
Uh, you know, there's no, a, it's about dignity at yeah. the end of the day. And that's what's missing from our, and people want to say it in a way of pull up your pants, blah, 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 blah. No self-respecting man will have his ass shown. Excuse my language. I'm sorry, but have his butt shown in the first place. If you had dignity about yourself, because you don't want to turn yourself into a spectacle. It's not a, that's a symptom of the problem. It's like Malcolm said, integration is a method. It's not the, not the goal. goal. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. A ding from Malcolm. So true. That's what I mean. That's but until we like, like, and now people say that the Gucci reparations argument, right? Mm, yeah. And if they blow it, so be it. But now you don't have an excuse anymore. Now, now what you gonna blame it on? Yeah. So the, now what you gonna be a victim to? The Gucci reparation argument is essentially what I got from uh, Hotep Jesus. And he said, so uh, let's say there were reparations. Uh, now, forget the, the monolith part, which, you know, he said, mm-hmm. oh, black people will just blow it on Gucci. It'll go to Gucci anyway. Um, uh, and of course, there's going to be a, a percentage of people who do that. But you're absolutely right that their choice. Now you have to look at them like adults because you know what? We remedied your problem. We've atoned. And if I'm saying this to white people now, this is the beauty of reparations or atonement, like I like to call it, because reparations is it's from the person that wants to be repaired. Yeah. You're asking. Yeah. You're asking, hey, repair me, repair me. If you want to atone, that's coming from the person that needs to atone with the person they've done wrong. Right. It's like, you know what? As a country, we've done you wrong. Here's exhibit A, B, C, D, right? So, okay, here, we've atoned. Now, you can't bring, like, just like when you, uh, people, you know, when somebody pays a, a settlement in the case, you can't come back and keep saying, oh, you ruined my life. No, I've settled with you. Now, if you took the money and went to Vegas and blew it, that's on, that's your problem. <laughs> yeah. It's not my problem. So, what I'm saying is atonement, and that's why I'm going to keep calling it this, is from the point of let's put this race crap behind us. Give people where they can strive for their own dignity. And if one out of three people blow the money, so be it. If two out of the three blow the money, so be it. Because you can look at the one out of three that didn't blow the money and say, yo, you know what? What's the difference between you and them? Now we can get to the real problem. Right. <laughs> it's probably because you didn't have a father at home. Yeah. It's probably because you suffer from low self-esteem and victimization mentality. Let's get let's get to the real root of the problem. That's why I call it atonement. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I get charged up about this because at the end of the day, well, I'll let Muhammad Ali tell you. That's that's society's fault. I mean, well, well, but, well, I mean we've got to educate well, my, people around it. Well, life is too short for me to be raised catching hell for something like that. I'd rather go and be my own. I have a beautiful daughter, beautiful wife. They look like me. We're all happy and I don't have no trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I, ain't, I ain't that much in love with no woman to go through all that hell. Ain't no one woman that good. <laughs> you understand? I understand. Yeah, I just I do understand. I understand. I think it's I think it's sad that that, that it ain't sad because I want my child sad. to look it's like me. Too. Every intelligent person wants his child to look like him. I'm sad because I want to blot out my race and lose my beautiful identity. Chinese love Chinese. They love the little slanted eyed pretty brown skinned babies. Pakistanis love their culture. Jewish people love their culture. A lot of Catholics don't want to marry number Catholics. They want the religion to be stay the same. Who want to spot up yourself and kill your race? 
you you a hater of your people if you don't want to stay who you are. You shame what God made you. God didn't make no mistake when He made us all like we I, were. I think that's a philosophy I'm, of despair. Despair. I really do. What? Yeah. Number this, one, can't no woman. I'm gonna tell you. Listen, no woman on this whole earth, not even a black woman in Muslim countries, can please me and cook for me and socialize and talk to me like my American black woman. No woman, at last is a white woman, can really identify with me and my feelings and the way I act and the way I talk. And you can't take no Chinese man and give him no Puerto Rican woman and holler about we're in love and you emotionally in love and physically, but really they're not happy because she's going to hear some Puerto Rican music, he's going to hear some Chinese music. And they're going to be clashing all the time. It's just nature. You can do what you want, but it's nature to want to be with your own. I want to be with my own. I love my people. That's all. I don't hate nobody. Man, I'm I'm glad I witnessed him around while he was still alive and kicking, man. What Muhammad Ali, what a genius. And to go to conspiratorial mind, isn't it amazing they shut him up? <laughs> no, it's not amazing. It's completely, completely understandable, unfortunately. What I mean is like, isn't it amazing that's the way he went? Like yeah. and he didn't lose Yeah, you're right. His physical capacities. He I mean, eventually it. he did, but yeah, he, he lost, lost his, his most mind. valuable. Yeah, I mean, and his mind was there still. That's the that's what really has to be. Yeah, just couldn't come out. He was trapped, yeah. right? But what? And I want to say, as he ended his statement, "Do what you want to do." But when you start making people feel inferior and lack dignity, then they think, "Well, if I can join this group or that group." Then I'll be okay. And you and I'm not saying this about race. <clears throat> no, this is in general. Politics. <laughs> it's like a lot of people are self-loathing and they like, oh, I'm liberal. I'm liberal. You know, I because I, I don't want to be seen this way. Even though they disagree, they they'll they'll change you know their their, their ideologies to fit so they won't be seen as, you know, or they'll betray what they're the how they were brought up. And you see that a lot. And, so you, and you see that, it everywhere, not just a lot. You see it everywhere, all all across the spectrum. And that's what really, to be honest with you, that's what irks people about Trump. I mean, not to make it about Trump, but for real. Because like a lot of white people, from my perspective, and I'm this is the outsiders. I, I'm I, I'm just saying what I see from the outside. A lot of people have people in their family like Trump, and it's like, oh God, they gave him a oh, they gave them a mouthpiece. I moved to the city to straight escape them. I moved to the coast, you know, the coast, you know, the flyover country. They moved out mm-hmm. of the flyover country and it's like, Oh God, my cousin is following me here. Yeah. That is definitely true. Uh, and, uh, yes, definitely. And a lot, and a lot of white people I know, uh, are embarrassed. They're like that because of, and so they're, you know, they're kind of, on the fence and they they know that they're really like that and they are kind of murka maga but they're embarrassed mm-hmm. about it and depending on who they're around or where they live they will often tone it down i mean it's, it's so conflicting it's so toxic and for black, everybody and, and black people are the same, same way, way because yeah. like sometimes we could be somewhere like we're loud <laughs> i'm just gonna tell you we're loud <laughs> like you come you come to our functions we're gonna laugh and joke and be loud or whatever but when you're in a environment where that's not called for, or it's like, you know, you got to have some, okay, we're at the bank. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like the place to be loud. It's mm-hmm. like when you see it, like, oh, God. Um, you know, but 
it is what it is. I mean, that that's just how we are, but we got to be honest and be open to say that's what the real problem is, but we want to make it some huge uh, <laughs> uh, national concern. Like, oh, he's going to you know ruin the democracy or whatever. No, yeah. he's just speaking for other half of the country y'all forgot about. Let's just be honest. Yeah. But I, I digress. And speaking on that, <laughs> mm-hmm. there's another gentleman that has been pushed to the margins uh-huh. and from some of his views. And I don't share all of his views. And like I said, we just bring in uh, clips from people that we find that we, you know, interesting to discuss. And even the mere mention of his name would probably get us canceled. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> so this is why value for value is so important and not to belabor the point. Uh, Minister, Spar- Minister Farrakhan speaks one. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, we have to press the government for reparations. Listen, as long as you ask for a job and they don't have them these days, but they can promise it, you're going along to get along. Do you know why Elijah Muhammad put on the back page of Muhammad Speaks? We want freedom, full and complete freedom. We want justice. We want equal justice under the law. We want justice applied equally to all, regardless of creed or class or color. We want equality. We want equality of opportunity and we want equal membership in society with the best in civilized society. But then in point number four, he says, we we believe that those of us whose parents, you know, have been here for 400 years, you know, and uh, we believe that you offered us integration as a hypocritical trick to make us believe that our 400-year-old enemy has now become our friend. We believe that this is the time in history for separation. You know, we could easily do an entire episode on Farrakhan. <laughs> Just, I mean, and, and, I, and I wouldn't mind learning a bit more than I know. He's a very complex individual mm-hmm. and part of a very complex uh, movement of the Nation of Islam. But one thing I do respect about him is their independent financial independence. Mm-hmm. And they try to create their own industry and they push to create your own fl- cash flow. Because I'll say this as a working man, the uncertainty of knowing is this my last check? Mm. What will I do? You know, and respect, I mean, I, me personally, I will never get caught flat footed because I always have a plan for a plan. So, I mean, so um, if, if it happens, it happens. And I mean, I don't lose sleep over it. But if you, if that's your only means, and source of um, uh, financial gain is a job. That's a very uncertain life. Mm-hmm. And you top that with all the things we talked about on the previous 50 shows for a black person. That's, that's one you can solve yourself. And I, like I said, it was different for people in 1960s, 1950s. Uh, but even our ancestors understood that that's why they had land. They asked for land. They was like, you know what? As much land as I can have, I can grow more crops. Yeah. And as much children I can have, I can have children to work those crops. And we'll make it as a family. It's only that when we got caught up in the industry, in the industrial lifestyle, 
that we became uh, vulnerable because our ancestors say you. That's why I know how to catch fish. I know how to trap. I know how you know. What I mean, I don't know how to hunt, but my grandfather taught me this: how you build a rat box. Well, you might have put a rabbit in the pot one day. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like this is real life. Yeah. But our children are vulnerable. Are vulnerable because they don't have any means or have any dignity from being able to own for themselves. And yeah. you always push this. You said, learn the code. Learn the code. Because yeah. if you can code, that's a skill, right? Yeah. And that skill. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, every black man over a certain age, they might do something for a job, but also have another skill. Like my dad's skill was painting. Mm-hmm. My uncles, we had bricklayers. We had concrete guys. We had carpenters. You know, this is their skill. Now, they had a job doing something else. Mm-hmm. But if the it ever hit the fan it's like you know what i can get these rollers out and my dad taught me how to paint so i know how to paint you know i mean i'm a pretty you know decent handyman but these are the things like i said if you don't have these this knowledge base then you're vulnerable and this is the more important why fathers need to be in the home but i won't go there um now here is the leverage point of rep- reparations and he's going to speak to this and I'll let him explain it and then I'll explain how I incorporate it in my life or in, in what we're trying to do now. So the Honorable Elias Muhammad said, well, I put it there. They may never give it to you. He said, but I want you to know what justice looks like. So they won't offer you a white woman and a few dollars and you think we made it. Some of you Negroes will sell our people out That's right. That's right. for just a little position with white people. You won't sell us out. You'll be buying your funeral. The future of our people is not to be compromised. It would be better that you would dropped in the bottom of the sea with a millstone around your neck to betray the legitimate aspirations of our people. We got to come out from among them. We got to leave Pharaoh. Leave it. Hell with it. Leave it. Force him to tell you, nigga, I ain't giving you nothing. If you put it on the table strong enough, he'll come out of his bag. See the day he's smiling. Hi. Hi, Hi, brother. How are you? Hardcore. See? But if you say, no, wait, 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 no, 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 no smile, no pat on the back yet. Let's talk about reparation here. Then you see him change. I've never heard that these last. Clips. Yeah, I've, I've never heard these that, clips. I'm sure you haven't. <laughs> that last thirty minutes is the apparatus that how we're using reparations, and what I mean by that is to the Democratic Party, they'll smile and oh yeah, thank you for your vote, brother. Yeah, yeah, you know, vote, rock the vote, you know that kind of thing. Yeah. But as soon as we start asking for something. For our 40 plus years of loyalty to that party. Now we see their true colors. Shut up and vote. I mean, that's what they have. That's what people are saying to us. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're black bots if they're asking for anything. Do, do, do we not see? If you don't vote for me, you ain't black. 
Exactly. Now we're starting to see when you start to ask for something, for something that you have for them in return is shut up. Mm -hmm. What gives you the right to ask me for anything? Who are you supposed to be? You're obligated, obligated to give your vote to us. And they've been very nasty, very nasty. Black box, if they ask for anything tangible, reparations. How about a study, California? Let's study some right. more. Let's get another panel. And that's, and that's why I risk playing, triggering people. I said, I was like, oh, well, you know. But I wanted to him that he said it so point blank and matter of factly. They'll smile in your face as long as you're giving them something. But when you ask for something in return for what you've been providing them for 40 years, they have their people out here now telling you to shut up and vote. Vote blue no matter who. Like you said, you ain't black. Let's go out on the list. Black blocks. You know what I'm saying? Just who are they to talk to us like this? Well, every so, every country, every race, every group gets the leadership it deserves. So that's exactly that's why we're doing exactly. the work. Can I ask you a question? But yes. So just because something you said triggers a memory for me or uh, a lyric. Mm-hmm. So did mm-hmm. the, when the OJ sang, "They smile in your face," the backstabbers mm-hmm. were they referring to this type of situation? Or just in all, general, all around, yeah. I, all around. I mean, they were in general, but it could be applied there because their music was very political. If you actually listen See, to that's the that's what I'm asking. I've never ever <laughs> viewed the OJ's as political. Oh man, no, oh, yeah. brother, no way. I had never thought of it until now. So they smile in money? your face. <laughs> the backstabbers do. No, what about for the love of money? I mean, they were very, I mean, yeah, they were very um, political, but not in the sense that it wasn't like um, dystopian. It was like very upbeat. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, it was, su- it, was, it, was yeah. it was subtle and danceable. That's what made it. <laughs> right. Wow. Right. Okay. Hey, mind blown here. Mind blown. I can't wait to tell some of my Dutch radio friends. Hey, man, you know that song that we, that we that, you know what that's really about? <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Learn, so, learned even more. I'm going to wrap expected. up with this last clip. I'm going to wrap up with this last clip here. And these are, this is from a very small podcast on YouTube. It only had like eight followers on the channel. So that goes to show you how, <clears throat> how deep I go when I go to seek, seek these things out. And this is too, uh, I w- want to say, I would say so called black because I don't know if you're ADOS or not. But they're talking about when, what happens when you take your black children to these safe white spaces. That I, too, compromised, I think. I compromised their public culture experience. I did not compromise their in-house cultural experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We got that on lock. You mm-hmm, know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I compromised their public cultural experience in some times of their life, be, life because of the of trying to keep them safe. Mm-hmm. But I have to be clear as a, I guess I'm labeled a veteran parent now for anybody else that has youngers out there that sometimes those safe white spaces backfired and then I wasn't prepared for it. So no, you take your you take your car to school, it's not getting broken into. Um you're getting private school 
uh, experience, though it's a public school, you know, you're in all the things you want to be in. We're in this lovely neighborhood. I mean, we lived in the suburb. I lived in Mukatil. We had the house the picket fence, the front yard, the backyard. Like I was like, do it. You're doing everything, Anastasia. You got it. You have, you have done all the things. But then, I wasn't prepared to go see one of them in um, go to a choir show and be like, oh my gosh, out of eighty three children, there's only three that look like my baby. What 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 song? Are they're doing a rendition of a Negro spiritual. <laughs> oh, wow. What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me the name of the... I'm going to make sure we promote it properly. Take him from eight to maybe 18. It's, it's uh, Anastasia Renee. I don't have the channel right offhand, but if you search that, uh, it's A-N-A-S-T-A-C-I-A. Renee R E N E E on YouTube, and I'll be I'll have more clips from them because I think it's so small that the the pod honest truth comes out. It's beautiful. That <laughs> so, was that was really good. I like that. That was a good one. So what what they're saying, and this is the fallacy: they take these children and put them in highly uh exclusive i mean what i mean by exclusive is very few blacks you knew that going in i when i moved i looked at the oh, okay how many black people oh yeah 25 30 percent okay we're good to go you know i mean that kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know because you don't want to isolate your children off to where it's only three like i mentioned this to go back to my college years i was like you would be looking for black people that's a very bad feeling and a lot of people can relate to this when you're looking like Oh, I hope I see a black person. You know, I mean, like when you see him, you give him that nod, like "What's up, bro?" You know what I'm saying? That kind of thing is. Yeah. That's not, and and I, I'm sure it's the same. If it, the shoe was on the other foot, if you take me out and put me into, you know, um, anywhere in the in the world other than you know America, I'll be looking for where, where, who's speaking English. You know, mm-hmm. I need, I mean, I need to find somebody speaking English because you're looking for somebody to, you know well, to I, relate I had, to. I had I had a similar version of that. You know, when I was thrown into mm-hmm. the Netherlands now. Not that you could tell just by looking at me that I was from America, but man, when you heard an American accent somewhere and like, you know, just out on the street, like whipsaw neck around, what? Hey, hey, man. Thank God. Yeah. Hey, hey, how you doing? Yeah. And it it wasn't just about the language. It was about, you know, football. Uh, (laughs) Understanding. Yeah. Yeah, Just understanding. Yeah. Yeah. But what the the final point I want to make is, and this is where you're seeing these people that claim to Black Lives Matter is because their parents, like these two, they take these children and they hyper, they push black, 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 everything inside the house, but don't prepare them for the world outside the house and think the world outside the house is supposed to adjust to them their presence it don't work like that no it doesn't work and i said it like that for for purpose it doesn't work like that because who are you three people to come dictate to the other 80 how things are gonna go but that's what they're going to these universe oh we need a safe black space you know oh no, no. it's like why don't you go to hbcu then yeah if you want that experience because that's very 
it's, it's, I, don't, I don't know. It's rude. I, I, it's rude, Mo. It's just rude. Yeah, it's mad rude. It's like, who are you to come? Who are you to come to my cookout and want to play Kenny Rogers? I mean, like, hey, bro. <laughs> no, because you, if you did that, <laughs> yeah. Because if you did that, people be looking like, who, who the hell do you think he is touching the touching the CD player? No, or the, or the Alexa now. We don't have CD players anymore. But yeah, but I mean, like I said, I, I, I Musa. Yeah. yeah, this is what you're dealing with. Hold on. <laughs> it's society. Ah, deep breath. <sighs> wow. All right, I'm done. Mo, <laughs> now this, I was. it's always enjoyable. I always have a good time. For me, the cherry on top was uh, the, OJ, the OJs, but that's just a personal thing. <laughs> Every, you know... Uh, okay, to wrap this up, every single time we sit down and do the show, I think I kind of know, you know, I, I think I know what I'm talking about. I, I think oh, <laughs> I've done the work, you know. And every time, man, every time you throw something new in there, and I, I know that you, you've got a plan, and, you know, it's like Preacher Mo here. He's Pastor Mo. He's, he's got a message. And I really appreciate how you are uh, taking me, but all of us, on this journey and uh, it's very well constructed. It's uh, it's it, this is your skill. It's it's very. I'm really realizing every single time how skillful you are at doing this, and uh, and that's why again I want everybody to consider um, playing this with their kids because it's it's useful. I'm I'm an older guy. I'm 56. You can learn a lot, and I'm it's right now, and it's it's it feels very good. Hey, you know how you can learn a lot, Adam. If you pay attention to everything, then the truth will reveal itself. <laughs> there you go again. That skill he's got, ladies and gentlemen, smooth as silk. <laughs> uh, okay, everybody. Thank you very much. Uh, please remember to support the work when you're doing the work, the business of the work. Go to mofax.com or M-O-E-F-U-N-D-M-E.com, mofummy.com. Mo, we'll talk to you next time, man. Thanks again. All right, talk to you later, Adam. I'd rather be with you. Yeah. Yeah, I'd rather be with you. I'd rather be with you. Yeah. Yeah, I'd rather be with you. I'd rather be with you until I'm through. Oh, yes, I do. I'd rather be with you until that day we'll fly away. I just love that smiling face in the early sun. If I can't have you to myself, then life's no fun. Yeah, I'd rather be with you. Oh, man. to be funny, but I'm really serious this time, baby. Even though uh, it's a cold world, baby, but 
But you know deep down inside that I do love you I know I sound strange But I really mean it We gonna make it this time, baby Just coming all over.